Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Occasionalist Spooky Season uh, Spectacular, I guess. I don't know. Our our John Carpenter Spectacular. Uh, Matt Pavel here once again with Adam Chemalewski. Chema, how you doing, man? Chema's in the house. Chema's ready to go, bro. I'm excited. I'm stoked. Uh, as, as I said, we are now into our, our second episode, our first movie review of, uh, of Spooky Season, our John Carpenter uh, Spectacular. And uh, this movie we're talking about this weekend is, this week is the 1983 haunted slash killer car uh, extravaganza that is Christine. Um, now, I, I, I want to, I think this is important to note before we really jump into this, is that we decided to not take um, any of Carpenter's classics or the Pantheon films that we talked about in last week's episode for the review. Um, we both kind of felt it was important to like stay away from like the really big stuff that um that everyone you know during this during this during this spooky season during halloween everyone's going to talk about halloween um everyone's going to talk about the thing right so we just felt it was pretty important to like shy away from those and go towards some of the other stuff that is um go towards some of the other films in his in his filmography to, to talk about at length yeah definitely dude and i gotta tell you you bring up a good point about how everybody's going to be talking about this Everybody's going to be talking about it now. Everybody's been talking about it last year, the previous years, the previous years, and the previous years. And with the way that the internet has been, like, you know, even since 2010 to now, like when things really started to, you know, get out of control with social media, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not going to lie, man. And I, I don't want to start off on like such a, on a downer note, but I don't know what I could bring to the discussion with those movies. Right. I really don't. And for me, like I, I told you on um, the last episode, I told everybody, you know, about all the, the Halloween movie stuff and with Wheeler and Wood and this friendship thing and all that. That isn't enough. And like, I got to tell you, like, I'm not going to lie. I kind of dropped the a majority of it in that episode. I don't know like how I would, right. what I could contribute here. It's, it's something that uh, I thought about even like just how we would do one of these episodes. And unless it was some like, Really, there's like cool or unique thought experiment, which, which I, I, I can't think of how we would be able to do one. I just I think we'd be at a loss. Like, I, I think that because it's so popular, it actually hurts our ability to talk about it, I guess, it, especially in the Halloween times, too. Exactly. It, it's you know, to, to sort of like expand this. You and I always talk about how we're like tired of the LeBron and MJ um, comparisons uh, that we always see on sports Twitter. Everyone. You're either like LeBron camp or you're in Michael Jordan's camp. And if we did an entire episode dedicated to that, it, it, it like, if, what is it, 10 minutes maybe? Because like, what can we, what can we actually add to that conversation that hasn't already been said? So take that and with like a, a seminal horror movie like Halloween, what can we really say about that that hasn't been said already in the past 45 years? Yeah, man, I I doubt that I know any cooler factoids than the next guy. I don't have access to somebody who worked on the show on the movie that I could bring into the podcast and ask questions like there's nothing that I feel that I could bring to the table here. And the other thing, too, is that I I will say, like, you bring up a good point about how we're always talking about the LeBron and, and Michael Jordan and just being sick of this discussion and stuff. I I almost think that it's kind of a little off brand for the occasionalist podcast to do one of the big movies during this time period i, I guess so I, well. yeah okay like that's that's the, what they, i guess that's like the only way that i could put it um i mean it's most simplistic simplistic way and i just feel that um it's not that like you know we're above those movies or anything it's nothing like that at all but i just feel that we could thrive by doing something different 
Yeah, no, I, I'm with you 100%. Like, when you think about last year when we did um, the, the Psycho comparison, Psycho being one of the greatest horror movies, you know, one of the period, greatest horror movies, period, um, maybe the best, you know, one of the best slashers, period, and then you can even take that. It's just a great film, period. But just reviewing Psycho by itself isn't enough. We have, I, I think there was much more on brand to compare and contrast the 98 version with the 1960 version. Exactly. It gives us just a little bit more to talk about. It's something that is unique in its own in its own way. You know, I'm sure somebody else did it before, but who oh, fucking cares? Everybody's done everything before. So, right. <laughs> yeah, but no, that's that's what I'm saying, dude. It wasn't really our brand. We have a brand. Yeah, I know. I know. But but this is and this is an opportunity one to see a film. I mean, I've, I've seen this one before, but it's been a long time since I've seen it. Um, it, it was, you know, an opportunity to go back and see something I, I haven't seen in a long time. Um, a little nostalgia bomb, um, a little, um, just just something interesting to sort of think about. You know, with a movie that isn't that isn't like the cream of the crop. Kind of thinking deep on something like that was kind of an interesting um, thought exercise in in and of itself. Um, so that kind of brings me to my next question here for you, Chema, of of Carpenter's other non Pantheon films that we've talked about. Um, which one would you be interested in doing? It, it doesn't have to be one of the horror ones. It could be any other movie. Okay. I really would like to do the ward. Like I know it's one of his less popular ones. Mm-hmm. And it's also one that I, I think you haven't seen it. I, I can't Correct. remember. I have not said seen it. Okay. Awesome. So we both haven't seen it. Um, I do think that there's something um, of intrigue there because of this like nine year break that he took in between ghosts of Mars and the ward. So like, and I know ghosts of Mars is definitely not one of his better movies. So I'm at least like, I'm hoping in my mind that maybe this nine year period off, maybe gave Carpenter a chance to kind of reset the batteries and reload and mm-hmm. be less burnt out than what he was before. Cause I remember reading that he was really burnt out oh, like yeah. after ghost of Mars and all that stuff. And who wouldn't be after all that much time in Hollywood. But uh, so with, so because the ward has a big, like unknown factor, that is one that uh, number one, I'll probably end up watching at some point in time before the spooky season is over with. And number two, something that I think we could do a really cool episode on because we've already kind of laid some foundation um, with this John Carpenter extravaganza that we're throwing. I I, I agree with you on that. I am, it does intrigue me, and comparative to his later his later films, the talent level in the ward is significantly higher too, uh, in terms of his acting stable. Like Jared Harris and Amber Heard mm-hmm. are two prime actors right now, um, you know, and you're and you're getting them several years before. I, mean, I already knew about Jared Harris before then, but um, but you're getting them several years before they became both Amber Heard and and Jared Harris kind of became bigger than what they you know what they were. You're like a few years ahead of Jared Harris hitting some mainstream mm-hmm. movies and stuff. And you're about like, what, three, four years before Amber Heard really starts popping up in movies. It's something like that. I know she did like the rum diary mm-hmm. a couple of years after 2010. So I, I believe whenever she blew up would have been, I think a couple of years after season two of game of Thrones. Cause that's when I remember, sorry, season three. Cause I just, I remember there's some kind of stupid memory I have where like, the rum diary was finding mm-hmm. itself on Netflix around that time. So that was, that's gotcha. when I consider to be Amber Heard first blowing up. And it's crazy because that movie, like with just Amber Heard and Jared Harris alone, 
those two have probably sustained way more Hollywood fame than like 90% of Carpenter's lead roles anyway. Like, I mean, Kurt Russell and Jamie Lee Curtis might be the two that have been the mega stars over time. But if you're talking about even like the, the stars of Christine, um, even some of like a Prince of Darkness, for example, there's not a lot of longevity with that cast when it comes to mega stardom anyway. Right. Exactly. Which is uh, something that we'll, I'll actually be touching on when we, when we get deeper into this, uh, into this episode. Um, so I, I like that. Yeah, the ward is definitely uh, was. I, I thought about it, but I think that was something would be really interesting that we could even do later this year if we wanted to. Um, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. I, okay. You know his first real what you would consider like his first real crack at like what is a what it would what was hoped to be a big Hollywood blockbuster, right? A big special effects extravaganza. Um, you know, two big names with Chevy Chase and Daryl Hannah in it. Um, Sam Neill before he. Uh, before he would take the reins as Alan Grant in uh, Jurassic Park uh, as, as the villain. Um, just, I like, I, I remember seeing it, I remember liking it as a kid, because it was, like, at the time, you know, like, all this, like, kooky, like, green screen effects to make someone look invisible. Um, one, I just want to see, like, I, it obviously doesn't hold up anymore, but I want to see, like, what it, what it looks like now in 2020, those kind of effects almost 30 years later. Um, and, like, I, I just also want to see, like, this... This I really want to like go back and see the story that he crafted that is very much not a horror movie that is a, a an adventure an action adventure movie that's based around a comedian as your as your main character like I'm just very curious to see how that you know because uh, you know how that how that like sits with me now because all other interpretations of the Invisible Man the last few uh, over the over the years have been extremely violent. Um, and yep. this one was more like jokey and funny and like we're trying to escape the you know we're escaping the government and like everything that's going to go wrong is going to go wrong all the way to us getting away i got you dude and you're right like something like that that is a, a complete left-hand turn or a sort of left-hand turn from mm-hmm. what carpenter would usually do something like that would definitely be like intriguing to me and you're the whole thing you say about the cast and everything with chevy chase and daryl hannah i think michael mckean might even be in the movie yes, yes. Yep. um like those guys in the late 80s and early 90s, that was like prime time for you to check out those guys. Mm-hmm. So I have a feeling that, um, and like I said, I, I, that is one that I don't believe I've ever seen. And if I have, it is, I'm so far removed from it that I, I'm completely unfamiliar with it. But with that, I have just this kind of feeling that that might end up being a just like a cool like kind of different uh, movie experience especially coming off of the uh, john carpenter marathon of horror stuff that i that i've been doing the last couple of weeks mm. yeah exactly exactly it's it's i like how you put that maybe not a complete left-hand turn um but definitely like a partial left-hand turn yeah yeah you bet he veered off the road a little bit yeah exactly <laughs> all right but uh let's get into it let us get let's get into our spooky movie review of christine um just I'll just give you like a good quick synopsis here, uh, if you will, if you're unfamiliar with Chris, if you're unfamiliar with Christine, maybe you should pause this and then <laughs> go watch it and then come back. But if not, and you're not really afraid of spoilers for a movie that's been out for 37 years. That's fine too. Um, but just real quickly, we'll give you a little synopsis here. Uh, nerdy young boy buys a, buys a car, uh, an old junker. It's a 1958 Plymouth Fury, which is, um, as far as I can tell, it's really more of a model trim for like a Belvedere of the time. Okay. Um, like you, like there are Furies, like there's solely like Plymouth Furies, but it's just basically, it's basically a Plymouth Belvedere that, that just has like a different kind of trim on it. Um, okay. kind of like the difference between like a, um, like a Ford probe and, um, a Mazda MX-5 or whatever. 
Um, I know exactly what you're talking. Yep, yeah, I believe me, dude. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. The, the probe days. I remember those. Yep. Um, so, you know, it's just like it's a trim difference. It's just built as a different car, but basically they're the same on the inside. Um, so if you can picture a Belvedere, then you can picture the 1958 Plymouth Fury. Um, but he buys this uh, this Junker car from uh, 20 years prior. Um, gets a kind of interesting lowdown on the history of the car. Goes for it anyway. By the way, $250. That feels like even today that would be a lot of money for a car that's in that shitty of a shape. Correct? Correct. Yeah. And from what I've seen on American Pickers, like they're buying stuff like that for they're buying stuff like that, um, you know, at like less than that sometimes, you yeah. know what I'm saying? Just for basically just a pile of metal. <laughs> That's yeah, what it is. Exactly. So anyway, um, so the nerdy kid, Arnie Cunningham buys this car, uh, takes to fixing it up in, uh, in a, uh, something that I have to assume that does not exist anymore, but like a self garage. Um, I have to assume that doesn't exist yeah. anymore. Um, it actually, they do exist. Oh, there's do one in, there's one in Cleveland actually called the Skidmark Garage. And the only oh, reason shit. that I know about this is because Jess used to do a comedy show in there. And just to make this really quick, so I didn't mean to get into oh, no, this fine. too much, but, um, but, uh, so what they do is it's a big open warehouse space and it's over on like East 52nd, 53rd and like St. Clair over in that area, like right before you get to 55th, 55th is the, like the next intersection I, I from probably, across the street. I probably have driven past this thing actually going. You have driven, everybody's driven yeah. past this thing, dude. You would, you would drive by it and you would never, ever notice it. You know, they don't really post any kind of uh, signs, at least they didn't when we were going there. And what happens is, is it's a big open garage and inside the garage are kind of like these sort of like prefixed areas that people could rent. Sometimes people could like maybe even buy the space depending on how much of an enthusiast they are. And what happens is this is like a bike garage. So it's strictly motorcycles. And if you are a member of this garage, your monthly fee like basically covers you going into the place. Uh, they got beer there and stuff like that that the dude brings in. They got food every now and then. There's other people around you to like help you fix your bike and you can learn from them and stuff. And if something like fixing up motorcycles is in your avenue, uh, this whole experience, I'm not going to lie, would be pretty cool. Like I found myself being pretty jealous that I wasn't a motorcycle guy whenever we would go to these things that Jess used to host. You're not a motorcycle guy. I'm just going to go ahead and no, put that out no, there. No, <laughs> anyway. no, 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 no. I know that. Believe me, man. Gotcha. No, I totally know that. But um, they do, they do exist. Um, at, at least there is one of that I can reference um, that is functioning in Cleveland. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. I'll have to look that up. I just, it, I, you know, that, that seems to fit more the motif for a motorcycle club. Yeah. It, as, a, it, as opposed it, to like, regular people needing to fix their car now that yeah. kind of feels like a motorcycle uh, club kind of thing yeah when you go into there and you actually see the space like it is definitely crafted something like with cars you need the the lifts you need a lot of other equipment these guys like some dudes just have like a couple of like toolboxes and like you know boxes of like supplies that they need and that's mm. it that's their station so like with a car you need a little bit more like sophisticated machinery to get the full experience and get, have it someplace where people could actually go and take and work on their cars consistently. And like that may exist somewhere. I guarantee it's exists somewhere, but this place, it was more crafted for motorcycles. Gotcha. And like, it's, it's hard to actually like explain, but if I could show you some pictures, you would know exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, yeah. I can, I can kind of visualize it actually. So, but uh, there you go. Interesting little tidbit there. Um, we, we have a, a functioning, uh, functioning self-service <laughs> A garage here in Cleveland. I did not know. But anyway, uh, Arnie <laughs> takes his uh, Arnie takes his car to you know to this place to get it fixed, and 
sort of in the course of, of fixing up and repairing it and digging around for scrap in this in this guy's uh, Mr. Darnell's junkyard, um, kind of forms a very odd bond with his car. And uh, obviously, as 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 the movie advances here, the car is more than a car. Something is it's it's alive basically, and it's forming a uh, a, a damaging bond with our main character Arnie. Um, it's pulling him away from uh, his friends and family and turning him into a different person. And when the time is right to strike, the, the car, you know, to his perceived enemies, his, uh, in particular this group of bullies, uh, the car takes advantage of this of his anger and uh, goes and bloody mayhem ensues. Um, that's sort of your, your basic breakdown of Christine. Uh, so Chaba, just give me your like your first impressions overall about this movie. Like what really popped, what, what are some things that popped out to you the most? Okay, so I haven't watched this in a long time, same as you, very, very far removed from the movie. So in this little, like, kind of rewatch, and I put that in quotes, some of the things that really stood out to me was, number one, like, I was actually surprised how much I enjoyed this movie for Mm -hmm. something being, like, as old as it is, close to 40 years old, 37 years old. Um, I I thought it was actually quite good. Um, As far as, like, the cinematic experience goes, like, I felt that they were pretty much on point when it came to raising the stakes and all like kind of like the technical stuff and all that. It's not necessarily a textbook Hollywood script, but Mm -hmm. uh, I do think that they did its job and execution like accordingly. There were some things um, about the execution that I'm going to save for when we get into our little critiques, but Mm -hmm. um, for the most part, I'm okay with it. The other thing that um, stuck out to me was I was actually surprised how much they played the human side of this whole thing. Like they really spent a lot of time mm-hmm. with Arnie and his kind of transformation, I guess to put that in quotes as well, or descent into madness, however you want to put it. But um, I, there was a little bit more of that than I remembered. And I guess like in clips that I've seen of this movie, like in recent times, and I say recent, like the last like 15 years or so, it seems to be more focused on the car. Like there's always like, you know, certain like signature shots of the car that you see repeatedly. Mm-hmm. And so for some reason, I, I guess I thought that, I mean, don't get me wrong, Christine is in it quite enough, but they really played into the human side of the whole thing, which I, um, which, which I was actually surprised about. And the other thing too, that kind of popped out was, uh, I, I really dug the car and I'm going to save a lot more of this for yeah. the episode, but what they did with Christine was just really cool. I'm going to say really cool and I'm going to save the details for later, but I was particularly impressed with the way that yeah. they handled this care, this character, this object with, with everything involving the car. I, I, I agree with all of that there. Um, especially with the part about Christine, which, yeah, I'm, I'm trying, I'm like, all of my answers until we kind of get into the breakdown of the car, I'm trying to like hold certain things back. <laughs> right. Because yep. um, I do have a lot to say. But yeah, no, I, I'm with you on that. Um, it, it's it's sort of, since you mentioned the human side of it, you're right. Like I kind of remember, I always remember the car being more, It's like you said, Christine is a lot in, in the movie a ton. But for some reason, I remember it even more from like my last viewing, which is probably over 20 years ago. And mm-hmm. I, you know, now that now having freshly rewatched it uh, earlier this week, um, it's uh, like you're right. Like I was kind of surprised at how much they they do dig into the characters, which kind of, unlike horror movies now, the pacing was very deliberate. Um, this same horror movie, if you if you were to make something like the killer car horror movie, this thing is smearing people within ten minutes, and mm-hmm. the whole thing is like a, the whole thing is like a joyride basically. Um, but like it it really takes its time to get to where we need to get to. So I was really kind of surprised. And I forgot that a lot of, a lot of older horror movies and just thinking about John Carpenter, how long it takes for us in the thing to get to not so much. We see the thing early on, 
but like really where everything starts to pick up. It takes us a little while to get there. Yes. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, I agree with you on that. I'm going to dabble into a little bit more of that into the episode, yeah. too. Um, this is also really, uh, this is, for the most part, I would say this is this leans 70% action, 30% horror. I mean, it's it's a car chase movie um, mm-hmm. for, in various parts. I mean, it's a horror movie, but a lot of the deaths are like action movie quality deaths. Like, just obviously thinking about the garage and everything and... Uh, you know, there's a horror movie death where Moochie gets, like, squished in that, uh, like, in that garage or, you know, warehouse right. where the hell he's in. But, like, a lot of this stuff is very, like, action movie oriented. Um, so that, like, kind of surprised me. Like, again, I just remember it being more, I remember, like, being more, I, I, for some reason, I guess, like, the, the percentages were tilted in my memory that it was more horror than action. Um, but I would say that it's definitely more action than horror. Um, despite that. I was, I'm really surprised at how non-violent, non-violent this movie actually is. Um, a lot of, you know, we see like some explosions and we see like Buddy Rupperton get set on fire, run over and set on fire, but we don't see what happens to Moochie really. Um, there's mm-hmm. nothing really visceral about Buddy Rupperton's death. It's, it, this movie actually earned a PG rating the first time that it went through the, the censors. Um, yep. so they added fuck a bunch of times to get a P- yep. to get an R rating because there was no, was, there's no PG-13 rating. I was going to say that exact same thing. Yep, you bet. Okay, I'm glad we got that out of the way first. Okay, yeah, awesome. Yes, yeah, I know just, what you're talking about. Yeah. Surprisingly nonviolent for, for what this was. Um, real quickly, do you know what the first PG-13 movie was? Only because I had to look this up. It was Red Dawn yeah, okay. for yeah. 1984. Yeah, you bet. That was the only reason that I know that is because I was was going to interject that point, which I'm going to follow up on that point about the the swearing and all that later on. Okay, just as some foreshadowing. But gotcha, I, gotcha. I do agree with you, and I'm glad that you brought that into the equation now. Gotcha. So there, there you go, folks. A little trivia: Red Dawn, your first PG-13 movie, because that actually, in hindsight, how did they go for this long until 1984? without some in between between pg and r yeah when um when i was doing a little bit of research on that i was kind of starting to wonder about that myself and i, I think somewhere in there like gremlins might have came out beforehand and received a pg rating yes it did. And i think maybe, maybe that kind of like ignited this whole push for a pg-13 movie at least that's kind of how i interpreted the article i could be wrong on that but um i am so surprised at that dude i am like really surprised that they just went from pg to r and i think maybe nc nc17 was a rating then but i don't like i'm only able to remember like clockwork orange and getting that rating you know what a lot of a lot of the movies that got nc17 or actually was it even x back then Ooh, it might be. I think it might I know X. that I know rated X did exist. Um, but whatever, like that, that like ex- sort of like the extreme mature content. It was always, always stuff that was sexual. Like it was never violence that pushed something over the edge. It was always sexual stuff. I'm telling you, that says a lot about America, right there. I, I know violence. I know. Okay, Hooters, no, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Fucking naked people, no way. But you know that's that's too much. But go ahead, blow people up and stuff. It's fine. Um, so how did you think Carpenter did with the adaptation of King? Okay. So I read the book synopsis and the Wikipedia synopsis after I, after I watched the movie and everything mm-hmm. from what I'm able to gauge. And I, I do remember reading parts of Christine back in like the seventh and eighth grade when like I was reading like a bunch of Stephen King books and stuff. You know, had no life and everything back then. Um, 
And it seems to me that he did okay. There's a lot of exposition and backstory stuff that I don't think made it into the um, into the movie, especially when it comes to this uh, the LeBays and like there's a yeah, there's Ronald a, and George. And yeah, stuff, there's so a lot can... there's a lot more of the LeBays that we don't have in this movie at all. But um, but I noticed he he hit on like he hit on the Arnie thing and like you know there's a human being being controlled by Christine, which you need that you need to have a human falling under the spell or some kind of human connection to the car. It's just the way we are as audiences. Uh, they got buddies, guys like destroying the car. They got Christine rebuilding herself. They they got like at least like some of the main points, but I think some of the specifics and maybe even some of the more like. Stephen King like specifics, which at least like was the impression I got in the backstory. That stuff didn't make it into the movie. Yeah, I I, I got you. I, I kind of went. I took this as like a broader question, um, just sort of like how I think of like all Stephen King movies and how I think of all uh, should say all Stephen King movie adaptations, um, and all Carpenter uh, movies. I kind of took these like just sort of together in like two big clouds, basically, just sort of like finding some some commonalities here and I, I really do think this is like an unmistakable king story that like i don't like john carpenter wouldn't come to this story on his own this is through and through a king story um but with the added carpenter touches that we expect so like so for example arnie is the nerdy proxy for for stephen king if there is a nerdy fucking kid with big glasses in a movie in a horror movie it's probably stephen king it's you, you know that it's a Stephen King story, and that kid is supposed mm-hmm. to be Stephen King himself. Um, so that's there. Um, you get the you get a, a, a through line that's in a lot of Stephen King books. The young kids trying to figure out love and friendship amid mm-hmm. supernatural circumstances. Yep. And then you get stuff like the wonderful practical special effects that Carpenter is known for. Um, specifically thinking about the you know how Christine rebuilds herself, like you get stuff like that through, throughout this. Um, you know even like the car crashes and stuff. Christine being set on fire. Like, all that stuff is, like, a Carpenter specialty. Um, you even get, like, these these sort of gruff characters that Carpenter populates throughout his movie. The, you know, the detective uh, Junk, uh, Jenkins or Junkins. Is it Junkins or Jenkins? It's Jenkins. It's Jenkins. Uh, played by the late, great Harry Dean Stanton, uh, who, uh, also another little Carpenter touch there. Harry Dean Stanton's in, like, five of his movies. Um, uh, you know, Darnell, played by uh, the late Robert Prosky. Um, mm-hmm. Just these sort of characters always pop up. In Carpenter movies, then uh, you can even say there's a lot of these types of characters in Stephen King movies too. But like, like if there's like a gruff old man who's a little bit dirty, he's gonna be in a John Carpenter movie, right? Yes, you bet. They definitely hit on some of the gruff with um with Prosky and everything, and Harry Dean Stanton kind of being like the, the you know the straight edge cop guy mm-hmm. and everything like that. And um, yeah, dude, like I, I definitely understand what you're saying about this movie like being like or this story being like a Stephen King story and um this is also something else that I'm going to touch on as we get into the episode but um I do agree with you all the way on this and I think to a certain degree it like it doesn't it doesn't hurt but it's not like it's a real big like enhancer either mm-hmm. and um when the it's like having two almost like two super creative forces kind of colliding and I feel that when you have these like like these brain powers, like the like the kings versus the carpenters and stuff, there's something in there that's just 
not everybody's creativity is going to shine through. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, I'm going to touch on this a little bit later, but what you're going for, you laid a lot of foundation down for what I'm going to touch on later. And that is, is that this is definitely a King story. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. I, I really like the way you're putting that. It's, it's sort of like two, two supernovas don't necessarily make it, you know, increase the power of, of, of the explosion. It's mm-hmm. just two supernovas going off at the same time. And, and this is, at this point in time in, in, in pop culture, these were two of the biggest people. Stephen King, this movie got greenlighted before this book even came out. That's how popular right. Stephen King was. And Carpenter was attached to a ton of projects at this time because that's how popular Carpenter was. So, but it, it didn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that this movie is going to be, we've seen this. This is like a through line through film history just because you have the right director, producer, writer, actor doesn't mean it's going to work out. Right. Mm-hmm. That's right. We've all seen Valentine's Day and he's just not that into you. Yes, we've all seen those. That's a prime example of a bunch of talent that just doesn't work. More recently, um, prime example is The Snowman. Oh, God. I know this you, movie, but it's I... with um, uh, what's his face? Um, Fastbender. It's produced by yeah. um, it's produced by um, oh, fucking A. This is gonna Bloomhouse, right? What's that? Isn't it a Bloomhouse horror movie? Oh no, like no, Killer, it's... Killer Snowman. No, 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 no. Um, it's do, 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 do. hold on a second, everyone. Oh. Fucking, it's based on this super popular book from Norway. Um, so you have like the the already like the popular book series. Um, you had um, who is it? Uh, uh. Peter Peter Strawn, I guess, is the is the main is the main writer of these books. Uh, with Michael Fassbender, Rebecca Ferguson, Charlotte Gainsbourg, Val Kilmer, J.K. Simmons, um, humongous cast, right? Uh, yeah. Produced by. Hold on a second. I believe. Hold on a second. Martin Scorsese. Holy shit! And wow. this is like one of the worst movies ever directed. Worst movies ever made. Okay. Okay, that's good. That's one that I will uh, either never watch or will watch for a bad movie review or There's, something like that. It's, so. Dude, it's it's really fucking strange. There's this is when Val Kilmer was going through his like his throat cancer stuff or whatever he had esophageal cancer or whatever. Right. So Val Kilmer is entirely dubbed over. Wow, that's interesting. It's it is a weird and additionally the 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 main character. This is a book from Norway. Um, the main character uh, is played by Fassbender is uh, Harry Hola. That's how you pronounce it in Norwegian. It's spelled mm-hmm. H-O-L-E, and they just call him Harry Hole in this movie. That's disappointing. There, there's really nothing good that can come out of that. It doesn't even sound cool. You know, it doesn't even sound like one of those characters that lead a shitty life and they just happen to have a dopey name or whatever. That just sounds really just lazy and a whole just bunch name of Harry stuff. Smith. Yeah, name, name him Harry Smith, Harry Jones. You don't fuck. You don't even give him a name. Just call him Harry. Something that's stupid. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, Harry Fassbender. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, but anyway, that's sort of like the yeah, like just because you have all the right pieces, it doesn't. And I, I say this as like someone who enjoys this, who enjoys this movie. I do agree with you that just because we had like these two forces of nature doesn't mean we got something that was even greater than the two parts. Definitely, dude. It's, I'm trying to think of a sports reference. It's something with Dwight Howard, but it's just that's totally escaping me. <laughs> um, well, how about this? Like, the, like the dream teams post post the '92 Olympics. I mean, like they won another gold medal, but then they finished like third one year. 
Yeah, dude. No, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. That's right. We had um, like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. And it was definitely post 90s and stuff like that. And it was kind of one of these like, oh, my God, we're not the best in basketball anymore. Jesus. Might have to, have to work for this. Right. Exactly. Yeah, I know. The, the Lithuanians aren't running out like a bunch of five foot eight fat guys anymore. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, let's get back to this one before we get too far. We've yep. digressed too far. Um, so what do you think about the direction and the look of this movie? You can extend that to some production stuff and cinematography and things like that. Okay. So this one was one that I, I'm not going to lie. Like this might be my one downer answer of the episode mm-hmm. here. And like what I, what I have on this is like when it came to like the look of the movie, I noticed that with the exception of like the shining, which you're no one's ever going to make anything look like Stanley Kubrick, but a lot of the early Stephen King films all kind of like had the same look and feel to one another. And Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't necessarily know if they're using the same camera every single time, but there's just something about like, there's something about number one, just like the way I feel that it looks overall. Like I, I feel that I could identify this as a Stephen King movie, even without knowing that it's about a killer car, but there's just something about the way he writes, like some of these side characters, they all kind of seem to be like, at least in my opinion, they all kind of seem to be like almost like exaggerations of the characters that they're supposed to be. So when you see like Maximum Overdrive, for example, like I remember there's a couple side characters that are just like your your stereotypical like trucker characters, but they're almost played as like an exaggeration of what yeah. the trucker character would be. And when it came to Christine, there's a couple of like in the beginning when you're kind of getting the lay of the land of the school, there's a couple of like nerdy characters that are just, you know, too much caricatures of what nerds are and stuff. And there's a a character that um, is even more nerdier than Arnie that tries to go ask out Lee in the beginning and stuff. And to me, that seemed like a very, very Stephen King, like side character, I guess, like something that I would expect out of like a Stephen King kind of movie. Um, especially from from this time period so I, I just like with this one and i'm sorry i don't have much more on this but like uh, the, the look looked very similar to stephen king period films of this period i didn't think that this was over or under directed at all like i thought it was actually pretty good on the directing mm-hmm. job there were some things that um like i'm not gonna lie like i totally forgot about a gas station exploding and bursting on fire so there was a couple cool like bigger scenes like that that um that was just, you know, like I just forgot how awesome that it was. So, like I said, I didn't have too much on this one, but but that's what I got. Yeah, no, I, I'm I'm with you on this one. Um, and I'll even I'll, I'll start with the character stuff first, and that it, it feels like some of the side characters, especially especially uh, Buddy's gang, um, it felt it felt like they were so over the top, so they didn't mm-hmm. have to do any character development with them. You know what I mean? Right. Like we just know that they're yeah. fucking villains. That these are the bad yeah. guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, so there was that. Um, and I, I think that's a thing that, that's a thing that, I think that's a thing that happens in a lot of horror movies, period. Um, when, especially ones that would, I think this is more modern horror movies, but it's been around in horror movies for a long time. Your cannon fodder, you don't want to spend too much time with them. So yeah. let's just make them very exaggerated, you know, characters. So like you get that, like, you know, the, the angry business owner is an angry business owner. What You know, so like you can just go ahead and assume things before he gets killed or something like that. Right. So I, I think yeah, that's just gotcha. a horror movie thing in particular. I do agree with you. There's nothing particular visually. I mean, there are visual standouts. Like we mentioned, Christine looks great. Um, there's some sequences that look really great, but like visually speaking, there's nothing particularly that stands out. Otherwise there's just, you're, you know, like there's no, there's not like an angle that you're remembering. There's not like a way a particular scene that like they're, 
there are visuals in particular scenes, like I mentioned, like Christine being on fire later in the movie is great, but you know that's that's like a, that's like an easy visual to get right if that makes sense. Right. Mm-hmm. But yes, there's nothing else that really stands out about this movie visually. No, dude, I, I definitely know what you're talking about. And like, I always go back to like Citizen Kane, like the default, like, you know, film 101 movie that they make you watch and stuff. And there's a lot of like visual things from Citizen Kane that I still even remember, like to this day, there's some angles of like of Charles Foster Kane and stuff like that, that forever are just going to be like ingrained in my mind and stuff. And these were like, these were angles that like Orson Welles had to like dig the floor out of the studio and put a camera in there to get that angle. It's like that kind of stuff. Yeah. With some of the stuff that with Christine, you said that exactly right where you, it's pretty easy to get that stuff. You know what I'm saying? And I don't, I'm not saying like, believe me, I'm not going to, so the audience out here doesn't think that I'm like shitting on the film. It's those kind of things. Like, they don't necessarily need to be some crazy angle and stuff like that all the time. I felt that the movie definitely did its job, but there's not a lot of, like, hey, by the way, great filmmaking technique stuff that yeah. are going to be being written about in books for forty years. You know what I'm saying? Exactly. There's, there's not. It's not like some. It's not like a technical achievement. The same. It's not a technical achievement. The same way that something like that something like Precinct and Th- Assault on Precinct Thirteen was a, a technical mm-hmm. achievement for how it how it made everything feel made you as a viewer feel claustrophobic with every right. shot. Right, 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 right. There's not any of that. Yes, that's yes. None of that stuff whatsoever. No mood enhancing through the camera or mood manipulation right. through the camera and stuff. Right. Which sure. is fine. Like it's it's not necessarily this movie needs it. It's just it's not there. Right. Exactly. Yes. That's exactly right. Definitely. Yeah. Um. So our core cast here. Um. Uh, I'll, I'll list them off before I get to to the question here. But our core cast: Arnie Cunningham, played by Keith Gordon; Dennis Gilder, played by John Stockwell. Lee Cabot, played by Alexandra Paul, she's probably the second most famous person to come out of this uh, out of this movie, um, and, and Buddy Repperton, uh, played by William Ostrander. I would just, any disagreements that this is our core cast? Definitely, yeah, that's the core. Okay. They, like nobody else is in there. Even Prosky, not a core cast member, just right. a strong secondary cast right. member. Um, I'll get to, I'll get to our surprise. Uh, the, the maybe the most famous person that comes out of this movie, but maybe you already know. Um, but uh, in general, how do you feel about the core cast? You know, there could you know could be something about their chemistry, their deliver, anything that you that kind of pops to mind when you think about these characters. Okay, like when we get into um, okay, so basically, like what I'm going to say here is uh, some everybody is kind of like good and bad. There's no, I maybe Dennis who. Um, you know, played by John Stockwell, or was I called Joe Tardowski? There's something about that guy that reminded me of Country Joe. <laughs> he did a little bit. He's yeah, got that. He's right. got the Country Joe face. Right, definitely. So has Country Joe's face. But like, okay, so he wasn't really in the movie as much as I thought he was going to be. And when you see him in the beginning, you know, this guy's like, you know, the stud young high school guy, you kind of think that maybe he's going to be the center of the movie, but it's not. I think Arnie is more like the protagonist or tragic hero in this case. If we, if I was to assign a a label to it and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, But okay. So Arnie, I'll just get into this kind of one by one here. Arnie, I think he did a really good job with the acting. Okay. This is definitely a guy who I'm looking at. This dude is giving a performance. However, I thought he was way more believable as the nerd than he was as the cool guy. Yeah. And I, I mostly blame that for just, just his appearance and just kind of his overall like clothing style and mm-hmm. stuff that they had him put in. He just was way more believable as the nerd. When it comes to um, Alexandra Paul, 
very, very attractive woman. As far as her character goes, like she was the character that, you know, kind of figured it out from the beginning and stuff like that. So she ended up, you know, being like, I guess, like the smart observant one. However, though, her performance was a little bit muted, I guess. And she didn't really get the same kind of like, you know, female hero moments that like Jamie Lee got in um, Halloween. Mm -hmm. And she wasn't even as much of a like commanding presence even that jamie lee was in the fog for as little as she was in the fog and stuff right. or even like or even um what's her name adrienne Bar- barbeau in the fog who mm-hmm. had, like would really kind of lit up the screen at times so i thought that while her character did her job um you could almost insert anybody in there and it would kind of do the same yeah. do the same thing at least at least the way i feel yes. um yeah. Now, when it comes to William Ostrander, I couldn't really tell if I was looking at Jim Morrison or John Travolta with long hair. I, I know, to look like right? Both guys simultaneously. <laughs> um, this is one of these things where, like, you're right. There's definitely a certain like over the topness to him. Um, when it came to him. I was a little more forgiving of some of the over the topness just because he was the guy that got scorned in the beginning of the movie. So I can understand like maybe a certain level of rage, just propelling somebody to do things that would be considered over the top. Mm -hmm. So I was a little bit more forgiving um, with him than I was some of the other characters. But um, I I will say that um, like he, he did his job, you know what I'm saying? Could it have been better? Yes. But was it awful? No. And I got to say that there's one thing that did kind of hurt his performance a little bit. It was those fucking sideburns. Like there's something <laughs> about that that just did not look scary to me. That might have been something that was scary as shit in the 80s or whatever. But the long, the, the zigzaggy kind of going off your face, half chin strap kind of thing. That was something that I, I, I felt kind of hurt the character's overall image and stuff. Yeah, I, 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 but the good observation on, on Ostrander, though, how much he looks like simultaneously looks like Travolta. <laughs> I mean, that's, it's, it's kind of weird. I guess, I don't know. But, like, if you, if you have dark hair and kind of a strong jaw that's part of it, you know, a little, like, part in the middle mm-hmm. there, I think that you're going to get those, those Travolta comparisons just regardless. But, um, of course. Yeah, so I'm, I'm with you, I'm with you pretty much all the way around here. I don't want to add too much to it because, like, like with with uh, Alexander Paul's character Lee Cabot, there's really not much to add to it, and that's a problem that we'll get to, that we'll talk about that I'll talk about a little bit later. Um, I was I, I again like you're right like I can't believe how much the Dennis Gilder character like was sort of absent from scenes, um, mm-hmm. which was interesting. Um, but like he you know again like I think performance wise these people were all fine, especially considering it, they purposely went with actors who were fairly unknown. Um, of course you know that like and i think that's a good choice anyway um just sort of like i'm i'm always a fan of i'm always a fan of certain things having people that are a little bit more under the radar because you know you put i i don't know at this point in time i mean let's just say you did put john travolta in this as as any character or the bad guy or as buddy repperton like there's a shit ton of baggage that would first mm-hmm. off he'd be far too old um at this point in time to to be playing a believable like 17 year old but but there's also just like too much baggage that's going with it that you're going to mm-hmm. you're going to think about him as staying alive you're going to think about him as grease you're going to think about him right. as anything else um so I, I did like that that these were relative unknowns and like we said like Keith Gordon and John Stockwell and William Ostrander really don't do anything um much after the mid 80s um I know Keith Gordon and John Stockwell do like more like production and directing and writing kind of stuff um Alexander Paul you know she's on Baywatch for a long time um okay she's she was um i think she dated um 
I think she dated um, uh, Hasselhoff's character while she was on the show. Um, and, like, you know, gorgeous woman, but, like, she was, like, the one who got, like, all the storylines and stuff. Like, she just wasn't walking, she wasn't, like, a walking pair of implants. Um, right. But, you know, like, there's, I, I guess, you know, again, she wouldn't become famous until after. So I do like the fact that we kind of had the, the relative unknowns taking up these main parts. And I do want to get into, specifically into Arnie. I, I actually kind of like that he was more believable as the nerd. Um, and, I, and I like that because it kind of turns that stupid fucking teen movie expectation, um, be it a horror movie or be it like a teen, you know, a teen romance, like teen, rom- teen rom-com, like his his glow up, his, his makeover isn't really like what we're expecting. He doesn't become handsomer or more popular. He just changes mm-hmm. his clothes. And in fact, he becomes more distant and isolated and people dislike him even more than they did before once he kind of gets taken over by Christine. So I kind of like that it, it, it he went from an outcast to just a different kind of outcast. So I, I kind of like that the greaser kind of look that he's going for just doesn't fit him because it's, it's not him. It's something that like is being pushed on him. Yeah, dude, I get I get what you're saying here. And if they would have gone with the whole like can't buy me love approach, which came out, I think can't buy me love may have been like four or five years after Christine, mm-hmm. where like it's a um, Dr. McDreamy, you know, that fucking stud, but he's yep. young and he's got glasses with the tape on him in the beginning. And then, hey, guess what? Take off the glasses and get him some hair. And it's freaking Dr. McDreamy, you know? So, yeah, I, I get what you're saying here. And, it does, and, and in the movie, he becomes popular. So. The what they're doing here with Christine is they're basically taking that dynamic and flipping it on its head. And I, I think like the way that you have dis- the way that you described it and everything, especially with him becoming an outcast to becoming more of an outcast. Um, I, I think that that interpretation of it or whatever is something that um, people would identify with and therefore be able to. You know, I think that's something like the conclusion that you reached to is completely within the, the realm of possibility and believability. Good. Glad. I'm glad I sound smart there. Yeah, no, 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 def- <laughs> no definitely, dude. And because I, because I didn't really think about it like that. And um, when, when you do think about how that dynamic of just somebody being unattractive and then all of a sudden is attractive and popular or whatever, it is kind of like it is kind of worn out. I mean, they, they do it all the time. I mean, it's, it's a pariah and staple of like writing and storytelling oh, and everything like that. But this does have. I guess like I guess maybe like the Stephen King edge to it where, you know, somebody does get cool, but it just makes them less cool and less likable and everything like right. that. And and when I use the phrase like tragic hero for Arnie or whatever, it is kind of somebody that is a victim of their own bullshit or whatever. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. even though that it was kind of forced on him, but still it's you know, the guy was under a spell. He could have really gotten rid of the car like at any time, I guess. But that didn't happen. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, he could have, he could have sided with his friends, but he didn't. He he sided with the car. Um, right, even, you know, even yeah. in the beginning, right yep. from moment number one. Yep. Um. So, how did Christine do as un? Even though she's not the main character, or nor is she a human being, how did she do as undoubtedly the most important character in the movie? Okay. There were times where, like, this is all I wanted to watch was this fucking car. Yep. <laughs> like, I'm not gonna lie. Mm-hmm. Okay. So for a, a non-dialogue having piece of machinery this is a character with history the the character has depth the character has emotions like 
it's um it's it's definitely like a well-rounded character and everything like that um i am very very happy that they did not go the night rider route where the car is actually talking to you Mm -hmm. and stuff like that i'm very happy that that didn't happen um the car also dubbed as a antagonistic force you know the like the primary source of horror minus Mm -hmm. a couple of jump scares and stuff like that here and there but however like there's this way that you could look at it where even though it didn't necessarily work out for arnie because he just descended farther and farther down the spiral but there was this point in time where like christine was actually a positive force in this guy's life he was someone that told uh gave him the confidence to like stand up to his parents and everything like that even in the the first like 10 minutes of the movie and stuff like that it was somebody that like gave him the confidence to land like the the hottest girl like in the school and stuff Mm -hmm. like that so even for a moment this antagonistic force actually does something good for the character which is kind of like a typical thing of antagonistic forces every now and then um and and i'm not gonna lie like I, i for some reason I saw Christine in the same light as Audrey two and little shop of horrors, but just didn't like the same relationship that Seymour has with Audrey two is very, very comparable to what Arnie has with Christine that, that I'm just, just throwing that out there. That was something that came into my yeah, mind while one. watching it. And um, see here, the other thing is that Christine, two other things really quick. So Christine also is um, the vehicle, the vehicle to show who these characters really, really are. Mm-hmm. She reveals that Dennis is like, the like the real hero of the story giving him his hero moment the hero moment he couldn't have on the football field he's going to have now like in his attempt to save his friend and everything and though he was unsuccessful at actually saving arnie's life but like maybe it's like more of like a bittersweet ending type thing and stuff like that it's kind of like a he grows maybe grows as a person or something like that and then um the other thing was that, uh, you know, Arnie, Christine, like, exposed Arnie for being, you know, not really strong, like, ultimately weak in the end. And even as he's just getting those last little touches in before he dies and stuff, I think is a, like, a real good way of showing this person's true character at the end of the movie, thus giving him a completed arc. And the absolutely last thing that I will mention on this is that, and um, we're going to get into some of this a little bit more, I'm sure, is... um they really gave Christine a fucking awesome personality, man. Mm-hmm. And now this might be a little bit of the weed talking, which I wrote in my script when I was writing this last night. But um, whenever Christine like rebuilt herself and especially after being destroyed by buddy and everything, the next like shot of her being like completely restored, the car looked really confident and powerful. You know, there's something about the grill yep. and everything. And like the way that um, American cars used to be back then, just these big, strong, like fucking, you know, steel buckets of, of you know, transportation and commerce, whatever you want to call it. Okay. But they, they gave off this really like proud and confident appearance and stuff like that, that we really like, we don't really have that in cars today. I think it's more of like a, uh, more of like a style and trend. We just something that we're not really going for, but they really made the car look strong and confident in those scenes. And then even towards, um, the end when the fight scene was happening between Christine and Dennis on the bulldozer, Christine, like she had these like fang kind of like things. Like she wrecked herself and the, the the bending of the metal looked like this and kind of looked like this rabid animal type thing, kind of clawing for its life or fighting with another, like another beast or another machine in this case. So the, the personality that they gave this car, like 
it's like a legitimate personality with actual like, you know, I mean, it may take certain things to for her to actually like express this personality, you know, like slamming into a wall or getting having to rebuild herself. But it just I don't know. man. I just think these things really, really round out and add depth to a fucking car, bro. A fucking car. I know, dude, it's you're hitting on so much there. I, I, you're right. Like she is such a presence uh, in the movie and every shot that she's in. Sometimes, um, like when we when we first see her kind of getting completed, when Arnie's like first really like when she's first coming together, um, and you know she's not fully restored yet. You know, you still need she still needs like the evened out paint job and everything. Um, the way the way the kind of like the low lower angles and kind of like long shots of like the the body of the car, it, it feels like it feels like reverence, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for for what this machine is. Um, you know, it, it's. Almost like, almost like in a way that you're like you're looking. Almost like if, if this was like a different kind of movie, and like you're looking like at a beautiful woman, and the camera is taking its time showing you all the curves of this woman. Like this is like pure mm-hmm. reverence for this for this. What's her name? Her name's Christine. So it's pure reverence for this female um, that we're seeing on screen. Even the way like Arnie touches her, it's like very much like um, you know a, a, a man and his woman, a husband and wife almost. Um, mm-hmm. But it but in but in those shots even in the shots of like reverence, you can still see that there's still something that Carpenter does that still like gives you the sense of foreboding, the sense that like, I mean, obviously we know that something's going to go off the rails, but um, as was set up in the very first scene of the movie um, in Detroit in 1957, uh, like we know something's going to go wrong. So like, even though we're looking at this like very, very beautifully restored car, um, there's just like, you're looking at the, the, just something about it. You're looking at it. You're like, I'm waiting for this thing to become evil. And then right. when you get the scene of um, of Christine rebuilding herself, which is fucking awesome, um, which, again, practical effects, man. It just incre- mm-hmm. looks incredible. Um, you're right. It's it's She looks almost like bigger and prouder, but also kind of in, a, in the weirdest of weird ways looks fucking angry. Um, yeah. Like she's ready to go. And I think, I think part of it is, one, it's... I think part of it is like the 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 make and model of this car is it's very it's I mean it's unique now obviously it's from the 1950s but like this was like a regular production car it just this isn't what you think about when you think about like hot rodding culture and like a cool car right this mm-hmm. it's just not like what you you you're thinking of like Mustangs and Camaros um, I think Dennis does Dennis drive like a Dodge Charger I think that's his car he does yes it's a Dodge Charger and so you're think that's what you think about like the hot rod scene like those kind of cool cars that's what you're thinking about but like. In her own way, this this Christine, this Plymouth Fury, looks so fascinating and so interesting and so different. And then both of like that bright red paint color on it, it just looks fantastic. She she even like in not like in a bad way, she sticks out in every scene that she's in. Like when like when when um, Dennis gets hurt at the football game, he immediately catches like first the car catches his eye, and then obviously um, Arnie and Lee catch catch his eye. But like everywhere that Christine is, she stands out. And, like, she's right. unmistakably a character in this movie that way. Dude, I like what you said about the sticking out thing, because that's one of the things that I noticed. And when she does stand out, there's just certain implications that come with the image and stuff. And, like, take, for example, like, when um, right before Moochie has his little, like, rundown and slamming and everything mm-hmm. like that, Moochie, like, looks to, looks to his left, and there's a longer shot of the car, maybe about... 20 to 30 feet away okay 
and it just looks like this really simple shot. Okay. And in any other movie, this would just be a shot of a car, but because they number one, like made the car look so well because they rounded out this character of the car so well, these simple shots of just a car have so much implication and so much like subtextual stuff, even without expressing dialogue, there's subtext in the shots and stuff like that. And Mm -hmm. those, those first couple of shots of Christine right before it turned into like a, um, you know, like a, a chase down with Moochie and everything like now it didn't, it didn't really like scare Adam Chmielewski or anything like that, but I could see somebody in the eighties in the theater and that shot being one of the most terrifying shots of the movie because of what they had done to get there. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, and and sort of to, to piggyback off this Moochie scene where we... why? By the way, why is Moochie just like walking around under an underpass? Yeah, that's a good point. Like, and it doesn't really matter. It's just, like, <laughs> yeah. it was a really strange way to mm-hmm. to get this you know, to get this character rundown. But anyway, um, no, like I, I what what I immediately thought of was in a horror movie... You know, like when the character thinks they're in the clear and right. like from, you know, from like from like a dark hallway, the the supernatural force or the or the axe murder or whatever kind of like slowly appears. And yep. like when Moochie's kind of like walking along, you just like catch you hear the radio first and then like you see her just kind of sitting there in the background in the same way that any other like villain would kind of like come into screen in a horror movie. That's exactly right. And there's the one thing I go went right to is from the Halloween remake. There is a, I mean, believe me, there's a bunch of examples of this, but like I immediately went to the shot from the, the latest Halloween remake where it is exactly that. Michael Myers is far away. The light swings and the next time it's visible, he's closer and then he's closer yeah. and stuff like that. Yep. You know, that that's, that's exactly what that reminded me of for sure. Uh, so how about, so how about in this, we've, we've gone over the thing, a lot of things that we've liked here, but how about something how about a simple thing that you would change in this movie? And then uh, then maybe a bigger thing that you would change in this movie. Okay, so um, the simple thing, two ones. The first one's really quick. Um, I would change, they played Dion in the Belmonts, I Wonder Why, in the movie. Mm-hmm. But just because I love Dion, I would change that for Run Around Sue. It's a fucking crime to not use Run Around Sue when you <laughs> maybe have they the have money for it. <laughs> that, that could be the case, too. They're like, hey, for 50 bucks, we could do I Wonder Why. And for 69.95, you can get Run Around right. Sue. So there's, but um, I so just my own stupid little thing. And just I love that song so much. But the uh, the real answer here is um, the simple thing that I would change is um, I would tone down some of the erraticism and the like kind of craziness of George LeBay. And I'm going to explain the reasons for that is because George LeBay and that those brief scenes with him, that's really all we have as far as exposition goes and Mm -hmm. as far as getting backstory goes. And when I was watching those scenes play out, his character now was, was definitely played true to form. You know, it's kind of this crazy guy. You're looking at a lot of off the wall and short kind of one word answers that are all kind of, yeah, it's a very, it's a very Stephen King character. Very Stephen King. Yes, you're right. That is another character that would be in Maximum Overdrive. That would be in Creepshow 2. That would be mm-hmm. all over the Stephen King um, filmography. But I would tone it down a little bit just to give the audience a little bit more exposition. And the one thing about this movie, like, I still think that there's, and we'll probably talk about this a little bit more, 
um, later on. But I, I feel that there's just we never really got the why out of this whole thing. Like the why is this going on? You know, we know what is happening. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't really know if we need to know the why. I personally don't feel that we actually need to know it, but it'd be kind of like nice to know it. And by toning down this character, he could still be a crazy kind of redneck and stuff like that. But by toning him down a little bit, we could give the audience a clearer presentation of the exposition. We might be able to have room to squeeze in a little bit more exposition. And I just feel that it would have helped because there, as there wasn't as much of a backstory, any lines where backstory was delivered seemed to count like double time because it just was something that they wrapped up and moved forward with. Mm-hmm. So I just think by toning down this one character a little bit, we could have got a better backstory painted picture. Yeah, no, I, I, I got you there. I, 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 I'm agreeing with you on, especially this one part about, especially the part you mentioned, like I don't think we necessarily need to know the exact mechanics of what's happening, but a little more backstory about what happened with his brother and his family and everything else. Just something more like, a, mm-hmm. like we could have had like one more scene. Um, or, or actually that scene where, um, where Dennis goes back to, right. uh, to talk to him. If that scene had a little bit more onto it, a little more meat to it, we could have yes. understood a little bit more what was going on and like why it's not just a car that's alive. It's a car that is a fucking nightmare. Um, mm-hmm. that we could have, you know, it, you're right. It just would have filled out a little bit more, put a little bit more meat on the bone. Yeah, it did definitely dude. And like, I, I guess like more recently, I, only because I've been reading this screenplay book for the last like month or so, that's just kind of really dug into myself as an artist and everything like that. And I've been really a sucker for the why recently and the, the whole like motivational element and stuff. And dude, believe me, I know for a fact that I don't really need to know why Heath Ledger's Joker was doing any of this stuff. That guy was the goddamn man. I don't really need to know much about him. But in more recent times, I've become, I guess, more of like a a sucker for falling susceptible into this dynamic just because I I also write this kind of shit and stuff like that, too. Not not the horror scripts or anything like that, but just screenplays in general. So um, I've been a sucker for the why. And... Christine is definitely one of these movies that I really don't think that we need it. But as me personally, I've just become such a sucker for it. I just, it's just something that kind of gets me in the back of my mind, you know? Yeah, no, I, I, I totally get you. And I think, I think a little bit more exposition, exposition and a little bit more information would have made the speedometer counting down feel yep. more like a real ticking clock. That if, yep. if, if LeBay would have said something along the lines of, you know, as as the days went on, I swear to God, <clears throat> I swear to God, they, they became like more. You know, my brother and Christine became more and more, you know, inseparable. Like you know, they weren't however you want to put it. Like they were, they were inseparable. Pe- like they were, they, they were becoming each other. That mm-hmm. sort of like countdown clock would have kind of made more sense because it's you know we we kind of get like these brief updates and we see the speedometer going backwards, and it's it's sort of that that would have sort of set like a a little bit of a, a clue there that like this basically is a countdown to when Arnie is gone and Christine is taken over completely and Christine's alive completely. Yes. Yes, definitely. There was, there was enough implication there for the intelligent viewer, but for the mass audience, there wasn't with the speedometer and stuff. And a little bit of exposition would have helped out with that big time. 
Um, so yeah, so I'm with you there at that. Chama, mine is my simple thing is very is very straightforward. I would have made this way more violent. Um, okay. I want to see yeah. fucking Moochie get splattered into fucking pieces when he yep. gets when he gets cornered. I want to see his legs come off. I want to see blood all over the walls. I want to see Mr. Darnell pop like a fucking balloon inside of Christine. The the kid that gets uh, that gets hit by by Christine at the garage. I can't remember that. I can't remember that kid's name. Or the character's name, but like right before it goes, everything goes up in flames. Yeah, I want to see him hit that fucking windshield, blood splatter everywhere, body parts come apart. Just I want like I want this movie to be completely and totally gory. That's what I want. Yeah, dude, I understand what you're saying, and you had said earlier and everything about the violence and stuff like that, and the the, the lack thereof or whatever. Dude, how would this movie be hurt by an exploding head? You know, it would, how would how would this movie hurt if somebody just all of a sudden got their leg ran off by a car? You know, exactly. it would not have hurt at all. And I think that in some ways it maybe would have leveled that um, action to horror ratio that you were talking about mm-hmm. earlier. And it could even be the exact same scenes like, the, oh, but, sure. you know, but just but just added blood and popping guts and everything like that and it would have balanced that scale a little more and and i think this is like i'm gonna say this now i'm i'm very shaded um in terms of like in terms of like more gore by the i mentioned before ash versus evil dead has two christine homage episodes and Mm -hmm. they are fucking gory and awesome and hilarious and like it's it's kind of i'm like i'm like i want something getting approaching that there is obviously like a, a point where kind of it goes over the top for laughs and shit, but like, yeah. I want something getting closer to that. No, I definitely got, I, I haven't seen those specific episodes, but I, I can kind of get an idea of what you're talking about when it comes to gore on that show. That's what we need and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That's the stuff that could really like really just take this into like a whole other thing of horror and stuff. Like yeah. people would be talking about like, man, can you imagine what they did with that movie? Like all the different blood and guts and stuff like that's something to push the movie beyond the 28 reviews that it has on rotten tomatoes, you know, to maybe exactly. put it to the level of a Pantheon film, something like that. It, it, I think, I think if like we had like a great scene, like I just think about that Moochie scene. If we, if we just saw that car push through him and just snap him in half and blood goes everywhere, I think mm-hmm. something like that would have made this a cult classic. Oh, yes, of course. Oh, God, dude. Yeah, definitely, man. Like, the way that that scene looks, looks like, and I know, like, we I throw around cult a lot and everything, cult following and stuff, but when I think of, like, what cult horror movies look like, that's an image that would come into my mind. You know what mm-hmm. I'm saying? Just this guy in a car being smashed into a semi-truck loading dock, you know, and blood's going out everywhere, for sure. Yeah. That would have elevated it to a whole other, whole other level. So how about how about a bigger thing uh, that you that you kind of want to change with this movie? Okay, so I'm going to be talking about uh, dialogue a couple of times throughout the course of the mm-hmm. rest of the episode, and uh, here is one of the times. I would have gone into that script and I would have yanked every use of the word "shitter" right out of that fucking script. Dude. <laughs> now, okay, uh, so, yep, they say it a whole lot. Yeah, and. I'm going to try to explain this. Like, even when I wrote down this little section here, like I'm after reading it now, as I'm about to say it, I'm going to try to do this as best I possibly can. So if you have any questions, definitely let me know. So on top of the, this word also being kind of just like an infantile, like vocabulary choice for classifying people to me, it seemed like 
every single person in this movie was a shitter. There was no differentiation between who is a shitter, who is not a shitter. What is a shitter? Like, what is the criteria to be a shitter? And I'm telling you, there. I, I believe that the movie goes pretty well on being profanity free until about that scene where Arnie's getting harassed by Buddy and everything. And then all of a sudden it is just like this floodgate of profanity opens. And this, like, there's a scene in the, um, when Arnie and Dennis are driving in the car, it's about an hour and 28 minutes into the movie. They're drinking Southern cross beer and everything like that. Like we get shitters like five times in three minutes, dude. And I just, I just kind of over this use of the word. I, I think that number one, if they're trying to insult people, they could definitely add a little bit of variety in there. Or if they're going to say one word over and over and over again, I would have picked something that like rolls off the tongue better, or maybe it's like a completely made up derogatory term. Like they call nerds or something like that, like uh, plastic pockets, I, I, whatever it is, you know what I'm saying? And the fact that we heard this word so goddamn much, the fact that it was used to label just about everybody sucked a lot of life out of that particular word, but it also sucked the life out of certain lines that surrounded the word. It sucked the emotion out of some of the characters delivering that line it even maybe replaced any emotions or any type of believability with almost like this comic kind of thing that just, I don't know, man, after hearing it so many times, like it was very hard for me to like really buy into some of the seriousness of Arnie when it's just like, Oh, these shitters and everybody's a shitter and this, that, and the other, and this little power trip that he's going on. It's just, they exhausted that term. I would have yet, I would yank it out of the script entirely. I, I I wondered every time he said it, I kind of wondered, I'm like, this feels like this feels like a Stephen King thing, um, first and foremost. Also, it feels like so the movie's supposed to take place in nineteen seventy eight. That word and the way they use it feels like it's from nineteen fifty eight. Yeah. It just it doesn't I gotcha. feel right. It doesn't feel like it's with the times. Yeah, it's it's almost like that that would have been something really crazy to call somebody like if the movie was set 20 years prior. Right. And I and I know that they were sort of trying to make the connection to Arnie and the 50s greaser thing, but it wasn't hitting because he wasn't the only person saying it. Everybody exactly. else was saying it too. And I I I I wasn't alive when this movie came out and nor would I be any way to comprehensive comprehensively gauge how people talked at that time or knowingly gauge how people talk at that time but it just seems to me like and i i'm hoping to god that this is not true but it almost seems like kids were calling each other shitters a lot back in like 1982 83 81 and the writers of this movie were trying to like maybe capture a dialogue of the generation or at least what they were trying to do or what they think that they were trying to capture something and it just kind of did not work out because it was over-exhausted. No, I, I really think this is the writers trying to stay faithful to Stephen King. Okay. 100%. Okay. I, like, I, yeah. I, I would have... I doubt anyone said shitter like that in the 1980s at any point in time. It just feels like I would something hope that, that Stephen King is... is it, that There's a lot of stuff that they... There's a lot of dialogue stuff that they try to keep faithful to. Mm -hmm. um, I just think okay. that's one of those things. Okay, I got you, dude. Like, I... I... Like, I believe, like I said, I've read the book or I maybe have read part of it, but it was a long time ago. 
I'm just a little bit out of touch with some of the Stephen King isms when it comes to something that that specific, but the way after hearing you say it, I could see a chapter in my mind in Christine being called like shitters or, and sometimes in Stephen King books, um, you would read and you'd see printed words and stuff. It actually looked like a book, but then sometimes there would be like handwritten words every now and then yeah. like meant to show you something. I could just see shitters being in this book in some way, knowing the little bit that I know about Stephen King's writing. There's, have you ever seen the movie um, Dreamcatcher? I have not. You know, no, you I, know I mean, I guess if you want to watch a really bad movie that Stephen King wrote, book and movie mm-hmm. that Stephen King wrote while he was coming down, um, you know, he's going through rehab. Uh, yeah. It's an interesting exercise in that. But um, they're, like, the main characters, also the, the cast is fucking outrageous. Um, I can't, like, believe they're all in the same movie. But um, those, like, it, it takes place, like, in modern, like, I think it came out, like, 2001 or, or two. And it takes place in, like, contemporary Maine in, like, 2001, 2002. And all of them sound like they're hepcats from the 1950s. And they use <laughs> slang and language that, like, just doesn't fit. And it yeah, I gotcha. Very, especially Jason Lee's character, especially. Just, like, nothing fits. And I just, I'm like, okay, so that's a Stephen King thing. Okay, okay, I understand. Okay, I gotcha. Yeah, I gotcha. And what's interesting is that, like, if you were a dialogue monolith like Tarantino, some of that stuff might just be considered your style and mm-hmm. people might forgive it. But when it's knowingly out of place and not consistent with, like, I mean, when I say consistent, I mean, pretty much all the Tarantino dialogue is kind of all the same. You know, it may have evolved yeah. in some way, shape, or form, but it's kind of rooted in the same stuff. When you're not when you're not projecting the same dialogue, I guess like over and over and over and over again. And Lord knows Stephen King's filmography is infinitely more broad than Tarantino's filmography. Oh, it's ridiculous. Yeah. Like some of that stuff will feel out of place because it has not been reinforced enough in his previous works. Yes. Yes, exactly. That's a, yes. Perfect way to put it. Okay. Gotcha. Perfect way to put it. Um, I'm sorry. Any more there? Uh, so, that was actually uh, that was it. That was my big major okay. thing. Yeah, just get rid yeah. of all the shitters. Yeah, get get them all out. Uh, no, you're right. It, it was just a little too much. Um, Chema, my big thing here. This is one of the few times you'll ever, ever hear me advocate for a movie to be longer. Um, and specifically, sure. even though they did a really good job of giving the of of actually giving more of the human side to this, they still needed to do more character development. Um, mm-hmm. I think specifically we could have seen a little bit more with Buddy Reberton's gang, um, you know, a scene with them being assholes somewhere else, um, to kind of, you know, like there's always the bully asshole again, that's a Stephen King thing. There's always a bully asshole somewhere in, in, in one of his stories. Um, you know, we could have gotten a reason why they're a bully asshole to sort right. of, to help humanize them, to give them more of, of more dimensions than just being these like clownish, clownish bully characters. Um, Mm-hmm. We, I, I'm I'm gonna leave Lee Cabot out of this, Alexandra Paul's character out of this because I have something to say about her a little bit later. Um, but like we we needed to see a little bit more of the friendship with Arnie and Dennis to understand like why this jock is friends with this nerd. Um, yep. I think I will say this. I I do think that they're like they still mesh pretty well together. But I just need a little bit more to you know to see like understand like their character dynamic. And like they're right. clearly they have a history. They talked about being best friends for a long time. Needed a little bit more to understand like why they're best friends. Um, mm-hmm. 
I really do think though specifically though we needed more time with Arnie changing in the presence of Christine. Like we needed more Arnie and Christine together. Maybe even a scene where like Arnie realizes that she's like alive or is something more than a car. But I I wanted right. to see more of the transformation process than we got to see. Okay. Going to dude I'm going to agree with you. Um I do think I'll start with Arnie that any more time between Arnie and Christine showing this transformation would have definitely, I believe make the character a little bit more believable as Mm -hmm. the asshole, um, as the movie progressed and stuff like that. It's kind of like they were trying to go with a don't use 12 words when four will do, but they do that every single time. And I noticed how like, take, take when we were watching clue, for example, in the first five minutes of clue we know everything that we need to know about the characters and they did it all by giving the characters less than four lines each in Mm -hmm. their introductions and stuff it's kind of like christine was following almost a similar format but not executing it well enough where you you show something that the audience is supposed to see but they don't really get into why they're supposed to see it. Like you mentioned, like with the odometer and everything, for example, which I, which I honestly, like, I will tell you outright that I did not pick up on that. I definitely, I I did not pick up on your observation about it being a, I knew that it was going down, but for some reason I just thought it was like the car getting younger or whatever. I didn't necessarily make the connection of that being a ticking clock to the ultimate demise of Arnie and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. But some more scenes with Arnie and Christine, you may not have to rely on the odometer to tell that part of the story. Um, going into with what you said about Buddy and everything, yeah, we need to see him doing asshole stuff somewhere else. Like I think that that was almost like a given and everything. They tried to present you with enough, um, and they, they, I think they, they, the point was made about this character and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't well-rounded enough in the sense that Henry Bowers is, where uh, not only does Henry exactly, Bowers... Pick, it's exactly yeah, what I was thinking right, of. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, like, not only is Henry Bowers picking on the kids, he's an asshole to everybody. You see him doing it around town, and then he comes home to a piece-of-shit father. Mm-hmm. What, in all reality, probably amounts to maybe... 10 to 15 minutes of total time in like the the first Stephen King's it of the the first chapter of the two Mm -hmm. it does so much more than what they did for buddy as far as like rounding out and like developing like a character and everything like that goes so that was yeah chuma that was you drew that line perfectly that's exactly what i was thinking of and the night that that uh, that buddy and uh the other little you know gang member dies Mm-hmm. I'm like all I'm thinking of is Buddy leaving his house. It's some shitty little house. His dad's yeah. his dad and mom are like at the. They don't even have to talk to him. His dad and mom are fighting in the background, breaking shit, and he leaves the house. Mm-hmm. That's it. All, all you needed. And uh, the guy who is in the car with Buddy. Do you know who else? What else he's in? He is in Ghostbusters. He's the guy in the beginning of Ghostbusters that Doctor Vakeman is zapping, trying to guess what's behind the cards and stuff. No shit. And. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, because that's what his IMDb um, picture is and everything. And I'm like, where do I know this guy from? And it was he was in the the introduction scene to uh, Bill Murray and Ghostbusters. And really quick, um, I wanted to ask you, who is the most famous cast member to come out of this? Kelly Preston. Where is she in? The, oh, she's the yeah, the blonde girl. She is. Okay, yep, yep, that's right. Yep, okay, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ro- I, I think her name's like I, Rosanna or Rosanna. Something like that. Yeah, Rosanna. I, I, yeah. 
Okay, I remember you bringing that up. I, I and go figure. There's a connection to John Travolta of all, there you go. Of all things too. Yeah, <laughs> full circle, right? <laughs> yep. Yeah, she's she's in it for literally about three minutes. But uh, Kelly Preston, undoubtedly the most famous person that comes out of this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, thank you for letting me know about that. And uh, yeah, definitely, this movie could have been a, a little a little bit longer. Even for clocking in at one hour and fifty minutes, even f- an extra five to. 12 minutes I right. think, would have done wonders for the movie. Exactly. I, I, think if, I think this is a movie that needed to be two hours. Yeah, just like, and what goes crazy is like, I still don't think Carpenter made an over two hour movie. But uh, I, I really but, don't believe so. But but this one might have been one that actually called, yeah. called for it. So for you, what is keeping this out of consideration for Carpenter's best work? Uh, you know, but be the Pantheon work or even like a cult classic. Cause I just don't feel like it gets to the cult classic status either. Okay, so you made a good point about the violence and everything like that. So more gore would have elevated it to a cult, cult classic status. For me, man, like I, I said this a little bit earlier about the two creative forces colliding. And like, I don't believe that we ever really get to see the full John Carpenter in this movie. We mm-hmm. only get to see like 0.75% yeah. John Carpenter mm-hmm. or something like that. And if I was going to, I guess, give any possible explanation that I could for why this happened, I'm blaming the production process. And you mentioned it earlier that this movie came out before the book. And it's not like John Carpenter hadn't adapted books before. The, the Thing was a book, but it came out in the 1930s. So he had plenty and a movie to go a along movie, yeah. with it, too. So so he had plenty of time to like break down the work to break down the original movie to realize how he is going to do his own thing i'm kind of imagining this whole process being it's um you know whatever it is it's uh, like the like the late the early part of the 80s maybe 81 82 somebody is just like okay so we have a hot writer named stephen king you know who he is right john yeah you want to direct one of his movies oh okay so this is what's going to happen i'm going to give you the source material it's not even out yet we got a writer named bill phillips who's going to come in he's going to craft you the screenplay and you're going to kind of like meet this guy and then you're going to start shooting like a week later so i think that the production process really hampered the full carpenter from from Mm -hmm. from making himself known here and I'm not going to say that if we would have got to see the full Carpenter, that this movie would elevate to a Pantheon work like Halloween or the thing or assault. Mm-hmm. But I think it would have had a better chance of that, especially with the way that the thing Halloween they live had had this second life via the internet in the last 10 years. Yeah. This is something you're hitting on a lot there. And I think that a lot of the, especially the stuff that Carpenter has adapted. I'm glad you brought up the, the, you know, the thing, that's like that's like decades of thinking about what you would do about you know what you would do with this movie and like the thing was a labor of love for him like he's he's a uh-huh. huge I mentioned before he's a big time uh, Howard Hawks fan and that's like what a lot of his movies are kind of you know they're like homages to Howard Hawks so he's had decades prior to 1982 decades of like just thinking about how I would make my own Howard Hawks movie um, I wonder if if this book had come out even like five years prior. If and he had like enough time to digest and think about it, and the you know the the book got tossed around and in, in the pop culture zeitgeist and all that kind of stuff a little bit more, if if the final product would have been more, it would have been more of his interpretation of it versus him just directing a Stephen King movie. 
See, I, I have to say that it is that it, because he would have the relationship and the time to develop a relationship mm-hmm. with the material and like relationship might be a little bit like too extreme of a word. It's just the only thing I can think of. But I, when I, you... I think it's Gemma, I think it's very apt because like when you find like a favorite book, favorite movie, whatever it is, poem doesn't fucking mm-hmm. matter. You sit and you think about it. You consider it more often. You, you dive, dive into mm-hmm. different interpretations of it. It is a relationship. Yeah, no, definitely. And thank you very much for reinforcing that. I do appreciate it. <laughs> but um, yeah, like I just I feel that, you know, time is not necessarily the enemy. Granted, it's, you know, time is the, the biggest enemy that you and I and mm-hmm. humans and all that stuff face. But it's not necessarily the enemy, especially when it comes to the development process and like not the, and the time and movies and all that. I'm going to keep in the movie itself. I'm going to keep separate from this whole like argument that I'm going to make. But if you giving him the ability to go over the work over and over and over again, you know, ha, to be able to read it, set it down and come back to it like two weeks later, which I guarantee you he didn't have the opportunity to do with everything just being like, you know, rushed and everything so hot with Stephen King. They released three Stephen King movies alone in 1983. Nice so they were really trying yep. trying to push this Stephen King as the best-selling author transitioning into to, to, to film and to like establish that legacy. So I, I just feel that like any more amount of time that you could have given Carpenter with this book, I think that he would have, maybe would have had more time to like, okay, so how can I work maybe some of the more exposition stuff in here? You know, like maybe we could try a table read. If this doesn't, mm-hmm. re- this doesn't work. I can come back in a month and fix it, you know, which he just didn't have, or I'm assuming that he didn't have because of, you know what we know about King's popularity and all that kind of right. stuff. Right. Even even if it even if it was just a couple of years, he at least could have he and Bill Phillips could have gone through multiple drafts, could have tried things mm-hmm. out, worked th- worked through things. Like we you and I both know about this, like how how sometimes scripts just fucking they get worked and reworked and reworked over a pro- over over years sometimes, and like sometimes it's that's good because the first one sucked, right? Um, or the yeah. second one sucked, or the first ten sucked, and like the eleventh one was the one that worked. Um, and you're right. This does seem like if when when a when a movie is filming before the book it's based on is released, you know that it's like you can only do so much with it. Like it's just like, well, shit, we don't have time to. We're not gonna have the time to to sit there or go through rewrites because the studio is gonna want this to come out essentially at the same time the book's coming out. Right. Exactly. Yeah. This whole thing did seem like what we what what seems normal practice nowadays almost right. you know but uh it's um but this even for the 80s i think maybe this notion of the book release movie release i think that they may have like overstepped their yeah. uh, thought process and everything bitten mm-hmm. off more than they can chew as some might say i would i would agree with you. i would totally agree with you that one uh Chema, for for me this kind of stays out of out of that upper echelon because it's it's a lot of things but not enough of one thing. So you have some dark humor that, it, that both King and Carpenter are known for, but it's not as funny as it could be. Um, it's like we said before, there's some violence in it, but it's not violent enough. The, the way everything is sort of presented, it, it's a dark movie, but it's not dark enough. These characters aren't enough. The story isn't enough. Everything, the way things are, it's just not enough. And it could, if any one of these things was stepped up, beat the violence, if it was a bleaker movie, if, um, if if it was like if it was really funny, like if it was actually like a really hilarious black comedy, a uh, black you know black horror comedy, I think that it, it could transcend what it is. Just something that I really enjoy. But like if I go another ten years without watching it, I'm fine. Right, 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 right. I got dude. I gotcha. You're right. There just wasn't enough here. And 
I guess like I, I was trying when I was formulating this answer and stuff like that. I was, and I had mentioned in the big John Carpenter episode that we had done a couple of weeks ago about this certain like highbrow element that were, that was been mm-hmm. in, you know, mm-hmm. Carpenter works and stuff like that. This one didn't have it. No, it really it did not have it at all. And maybe more time he could have found whatever this highbrow. Right. I don't even know if there really is a place for it, if it's a, a adapted work or whatever, but they're just, they're hitting on stuff that they're just like, not, it's just not the same as it used to be. And like for everybody, if you want a more modern example, there's this band that I really like called idols, I D L E S really, really good stuff. They're out of, out of England and everything. Their first two albums are absolutely amazing. This is really, really great stuff. They just released a new album that does sound like the first two albums, but they're just not hitting it. And these are almost like these little things that um, the specifics of it's almost like even hard to explain via words and stuff like that. You're like, oh, okay, so violence, you definitely, you know, you could obviously tell that there's going to need more violence and everything. How to plan out a more violent scene, I think it'd be something that'd be easy to come across. But the sense of humor stuff that wasn't there. That's so hard to, like, it's so hard to pick out like line for line, like exactly what is not there that was there before and stuff. Is it just the jokes aren't as funny mm-hmm. or is it the, the juxtaposition of imagery for the sake of humor? That's just not the same, but it is one of these examples. If you were to go watch they live or go watch the, let's just stick with they live. If you were to watch they live right before watching Christine, I almost think that it'd be safe to assume that these could be two completely different directors. Yeah, I, I would, I would a hundred percent agree with you. Despite, despite some of the, you know, the same shooting techniques and everything else, um, there's like an unmistakable fingerprint on they live and unmistakable stuff from they live that just is not there in Christine. Yeah. It's like, it's so hard to explain. Like it just, it's just the idea, maybe like the whole idea of being able to see this alien invasion through the glasses. There's nothing like that idea in Christine at all. Right. Exactly. Like they, they tried some things like there's, um, you know, like they tried the radio thing, right. To sort of get, right. to sort of like make that like sort of like your warning sign or whatever that, uh, that Christine is communicating, warning you, whatever. But like, even that wasn't one, it's a little bit hokey. And I think that's also just, Again, many, many years of seeing of stuff like that happening in movies. Um, mm-hmm. Just like right now, I'm just fucking thinking about the Transformers movies. Um, but yeah, <laughs> but like that's sort of like maybe it, maybe in 1983 it wasn't quite as it was a little bit more fresh. But like that's just sort of like came across like as hokey to me. And it's it's something a little bit that's trying to be. It's something a little bit similar to like what they live perfected with the glasses. Yeah, I got, dude, I got you for sure. And like, I, I interpreted the, the radio as almost like the Jaws theme almost, you know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Like there's mm-hmm. a little bit of like a precursor to, uh, to the, the horror and stuff like that, or like you know, some kind of allusion to something else. And um, yeah, it's like, it's definitely hokey, but it's also like, it's kind of like a hokiness that they got only because of situation. Yeah, you know for what sure. I'm saying? Yes, for sure. And, and like, I, if I would, I'll be the first one to say it, dude. Like if I was in th- this position and stuff like that and direct, that is going to be something that is probably like in my top five of like, what can we do to this car? You know, I'd probably say something like that. Yeah, no, I got you. I got you. I just, I just, I just think, I think the execution of it just wasn't again, just to use the, the sort of, just to kind of go back to my main point here, the execution of it wasn't good enough. It just yeah. needed a little bit more. Yeah, dude, I, 
I understand what you're saying, man. I it's I'm having a hard time giving the million examples that I feel like I can give, <laughs> but I just know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. All right, Shema, let's get into some positives. We're going to do some positive and negatives. Uh, let's just go through the positives first. Um, we're going to touch on direction and production, acting and writing. Uh, I kept effects work separate from production because I think that's a, that's a big thing here. Um, and yep. then anything else that kind of comes to mind. So, uh, Chemo, let's just go right down the line here. What, what was, uh, like, some of your positives that you had from the direction of the production? Okay, so, like, um, I actually thought everything was pretty much okay with the, like, obviously with some of the exceptions of the blood and some of the other things that we've touched on. For a movie-wise, I thought it was actually all right. Um, I noticed and I read that they used the same neighborhood for um, that was in Halloween. It was the, basically the same neighborhood that they used to shoot in Christine and stuff. Mm -hmm. And um, I got to tell you, man, that neighborhood looks nothing like that now. It looks – I mean it, they make the suburbs look like how it would, it would in Ohio – that does not look like that now. So um, I, I thought it was kind of cool that they used the same um, the same uh, area that they did in Halloween. Mm. Um, leaving aside the special effects part, which uh, we're definitely going to talk about, there was one particular part of Christine that I really, really loved, and it was towards the end when she's hiding in the warehouse already, like Dennis mm -hmm. and, and Lee think, Hey, we're going to, we got this, you know, but it turns out she's already there when the lights come on. That is one of the, it also comes with one of the few times in the movie that we get to hear John Carpenter score. Yeah. And like, it's, um, it's, it's, it's there. And believe me, it's totally, totally noticeable when it's there, but I don't feel that the score work is as heavy in Christine as it is to some of his other movies and stuff. And when the lights come on in the garage, that's as the lights come on, the score kicks in immediately. And it's one of the coolest pieces of music in the movie. And it's also one of the more like harder in your face musical compositions that John Carpenter has done as a composer. Mm -hmm. I'm with you on that a hundred percent that, that scene, the way that scene starts is like pure, it's perfection. The way that scene starts, it's fucking great. Yeah, dude. Yeah. And like, I, I liked, I kind of liked the high school element of it. You know, I thought that they captured that snapshot of life, I guess, like mm -hmm. as best they possibly could and everything. Um, I, I did look, like, appreciate like the football sequence. I thought that that was something that set up Dennis's character, you know, for way later on in the end, it was also kind of cool to see John Carpenter shoot a sports, uh, <laughs> yeah. se a sequence other than snake Plissken making a bunch of shots in a row, which mm -hmm. Kurt Russell's the man. But, um, but yeah, so I mean like most of some of this stuff I'm going to save for the, the effects were part of it, but I um, I, all in all, I thought it was okay. Yeah. I gotcha. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm very generally the, the chase scenes, the pursuit scenes, um, or I guess you could even say the hunting scenes with, with Christine are pretty great. Um, even, even when the, even when the one pursuit scene becomes an action sequence and, and she's, ch you know, she's chasing down Buddy and, uh, and the other guy, um, at, you know, to the garage and like the car accident and the car crashing is, is, is very, it, it feels, it feels like it belongs in any action movie. Like it's, it's not out of place in this. Um, in particular, I, there's two things that I really love in, in particular. Um, when, when Christine emerges from the, from the explosion, and she's chasing down Buddy Repperton. I love, first off, I just love how it's shot. Um, that flaming car rolling down like this just complete black background. Um, I love how instead of, a, a modern horror movie would have had that thing going 100 miles an hour running over Buddy. 
I love mm-hmm. how she just sort of is just barely going faster than him. So she's just slowly closing the distance. No, yep. you know, it's one of those like it's one of those like predator prey things like like how cats play with their prey mm-hmm. sometimes. It's it's that. It's sort of like it doesn't matter what you do, you can't outrun me. Like this is as fast right. as you can go and I'm going to go just a little bit faster so you can kind of see me and feel me coming. And just how how she just gradually overtakes him and leaves that burning body in her wake was just fucking fantastic. Like I love that whole whole sequence there. And then um, to go back to the the garage fight, um, I love how I love how they get around Christine healing in the final sequence. How she receives the shadows, sort of like an, again, like an, almost like an animal kind of retreating mm-hmm. to, to to lick its wounds. How she retreats to the shadows and then emerges once again like fully healed. Yeah, that's right, dude. Yeah, there was they, she goes from the fang grill to like being fully healed mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Yes, definitely. And I, I really liked the way that I tell you just these transitions of damaged car to stud pristine like perfect condition car i I think really really helped display like exactly what christine was capable of and everything like Mm -hmm. that they did did a really really good job with that what was the first thing that you mentioned again really quick no just just that the like the action sequences felt like and yeah, so, okay. like it didn't feel out of place it felt like i was watching it you know what i mean like i'm like yeah. this is a good action sequence this is a good action sequence in any action movie okay yeah definitely and i wanted to make a comment on what you said about the chase between buddy and everything like mm-hmm. that and you're 100 percent right about how this is if this was a modern horror movie you're looking at the radio cranked 100 miles an hour all that stuff what it reminded me of specifically was the way that Carpenter used Michael Myers to pursue his mm-hmm. prey. And when you watch the Halloween movies, the victim is always the one that's running and screaming and flailing and everything like that. And Michael Myers is just walking. He's never really picking up the pace. He's just kind of following them. It's almost like he knows the end result before it even happens, mm-hmm. which I think really makes it sinister and stuff. And the fact that they slowed Christine down a little bit, and this was something that I put into the effects category, so I'll, I'll mention okay. this specific part now. But um, what they do by slowing her down, you just get some really fucking awesome shots of the car on fire. Yeah. There's some really cool like front shots of the car being on fire. It really like shows the car in like this, this fury of like madness and everything like that. You know, just as I, I took it as a vis- visual representation of, mm-hmm. and it was just really, really cool. And they milk that scene for all it's worth in all the right ways, including when buddy's body gets set on fire. It's almost just like a nonchalant thing. Like, Oh yeah, that probably would happen if you got run over by a flaming car, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. it wasn't, it wasn't like the flaming death was the star of that scene. It was still even Christine while a body's burning and she's driving away. Exactly. Exactly. It was fucking, fucking great. Um, how about, uh, how about the acting and the writing here? Okay. So just for these being mostly unknowns and stuff like that, like I, I didn't expect, and obviously like just, just being a horror movie from the eighties, I didn't really expect too much, you know? So yeah. like, I thought every, I thought everybody definitely did their job. I did make those critiques about Arnie and stuff like mm-hmm. that. And just the look not being all that believable, right. but I am not taking anything away from that dude's performance. That was definitely acting. And you got to see this, this change in the character, which, which I thought he brought, I mean, he brought the wood when he was the asshole character. So I really 
like I, th- I thought that like these people they did what they could with like the skill sets that they had i also agree with you when you said about um you know not hiring any big stars it would just basically look like hey it's john travolta in a horror movie you'd be more focused on travolta mm. being in the movie than the actual movie so um for being a bunch of unknowns and everything i thought that uh, everything kind of mashed meshed well together um there wasn't really too much as far as like, because my expectations were not through the roof you know what i'm saying so the performances matched my expectations when it comes to writing there's one really just cool thing that i I like that they did they came full circle with the scene in the very beginning with uh will darnell knowing the guy who died in the um in the car or whatever like i i when um he's talking to arnie somewhere he mentions like oh i haven't seen one of those cars in a Mm -hmm. while we in fact, it's been the fifties, and the, you know, I knew that this guy killed himself in the car or something like that. I thought that that was just a cool way to bring that full circle and just to kind of reinforce that that opening scene happened because the opening scene, while it is definitely makes its point, and I actually I actually think it's kind of cool with the, the red car being on the assembly line mm-hmm. with all the white cars and stuff, but at the same time there's not really like much to that other than just kind of showing you what you're in for or what you could maybe expect. So the fact that he mentions that again, I thought was a cool way to kind of bring that full circle. Yeah. The, the, the line that, uh, that Darnell gives is I haven't, I haven't seen one of these in 20 years. Um, I used to, you know, I used to, I knew a guy that, uh, that died inside of one of these at work. So like, and he's, if you kind of extrapolate from there, I think he would have been like the third person we see in that scene. It's supposed Probably, to be Darnell. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, there's even a guy that I think they kind of, this could possibly be a younger version of Right, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, the, like the yeah. one guy's like, it, it's not explicitly said. I think it's more explicitly said in like other versions of the script or maybe, okay. maybe it's in the, the book, but that that's that's supposed to be Darnell. That, that, that's who that is. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I Just a little stupid thing that I, I really liked. And I, there's, I know that... Um, you know, there's probably like some plot holes and loopholes and everything oh, like that sure. that this movie has left. But there is just something about tying that opening scene together to the rest of the movie through this character. I thought acted as like a nice bridge. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm with you on that 100 um, percent. So like, I'll, I'll just that was actually one of, the, one of the things I was going to mention, that sort of full circle kind of nature of it. Um, <clears throat> I do I do thoroughly enjoy just to, to bring out the characters here a little bit. Um, you're right, like, Keith Gordon is doing everything that he can do as this character, as this Arnie character. And is he a great actor? I mean, clearly, maybe he's not a great actor, because he's kind of stopped acting after the mid-80s, um, mid-late 80s. But for this character, he's pretty good with it, and he's pretty perfect for it. He's just believably nerdy, he's believably an outcast, um, and he's... We we've always we always talk about it, we always mention it. I'd rather you give full full effort, even if you're not that great at it, than, like, being lazy. And not giving mm-hmm. your full effort. And he gives his full effort, and he's, and he's totally good as, as the Arnie character. Um, and I mentioned before, I, I really... I wish we could have gotten a little bit more with Arnie and, and Dennis, but they were still pretty believably friends. Like, it, it just... Right. Even though they were kind of from... Clearly from different social casts in that high school, um, they clearly have, like, a history that just sort of... You know, it, it's there. It's Even though they're very different, they're still friends. And I, it was, like, believable that way. Yeah, definitely. And I remembered something that I was going to say when when you were talking about the more time thing. And that is when Dennis is like actually in front of Arnie's parents and Arnie's parents are asking, why did you let him do this? Mm -hmm. A little bit more exposition as to like, you know, 
why he's in the kitchen taking shit from his parents. Yeah. And, you know, that would have been great. That was the one thing I knew I forgot something. And that was one thing I did want to mention and stuff. Right. And, and you're right. They got a, they got a good enough dynamic and everything. Like it's, um, it's a b- believable dynamic for the cool guy and the nerdy guy and stuff. There are some of these dynamics that you see on screen that may not be as believable and maybe a little bit more of an eyebrow raiser, but for the two of them's dynamic, I thought that they, they fit well. You know, you know what they could have done that would have answered that sort of question? Um, What's that? The opening scene where we see where um, where Dennis is coming to pick him up. We should have seen his car leaving his house down the street, and then picks up Arnie. Like they've they've been, you know what I mean? Like the, the insinuation means yeah. they've been neighbors for a long time. Yeah, I gotcha. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand what you're saying. Something to make that visual connection yeah. there for sure. Definitely. Uh, so let's let's get to it. How about the how about the effects work? Okay, dude, I can't even believe that it's. We're gonna go on, I think, three episodes are in a row where number one, you mentioned the whole like I'm basically bringing back to that feels like the first time conversation that <laughs> yeah. we had from the this right here. I I believe if there is ever a this is the definitive example of what I think you were talking about, and I know that there are many examples mm-hmm. that you even mentioned some in in that particular section of the episode that we did, but this is like practical fucking effects at their finest. And I'm going to say it right here. It all starts off with the car rebuilding itself. Mm -hmm. That was awesome. That would hold up today. That would have been way worse with CGI. That is just a really great example of effects for that time working and working great. And like that could be some of the best special effects work in a John Carpenter movie period. Maybe the the thing creatures and stuff Mm -hmm. probably be another close contender. But those little sequences of, of Christine rebuilding herself were just absolute movie magic, man. Like, that's the kind of stuff that, like, you you go to see the movies for when it comes to practical effects. It, it, exactly. And, it, it's, it, it is, it's just such a kick-ass scene. It's only, what is it, like, maybe a minute long of, of, of her popping back together? Yep. If maybe that, maybe longer. Yeah, if that. And, like, oh, it, just, it just looks awesome the way, I mean, obviously, it's... it's you know when you go through the IMDb trivia on it, or you know, look, you know, do like the Wikipedia reading, it's a uh, film run backwards, and like it's you know, it's like a plastic shell that has like hoses and compressors and stuff to to warp mm-hmm. the shape of it. Um, but like again, like that's just sort of like you you know that if even if John Carpenter made this movie now in 2020, he would still go the same route to go. We're gonna use hoses. We're gonna use air. We're going to use a plastic shell and we're going to crumple this thing and then run it backwards because that would look better than trying to do this on a computer. Um, yeah. And it just, even if you can get kind of close to it with like CGI, there's there's just something about like the, the way you can kind of see the, the plastic, which is, you know, which does look believably like metal, the way you can see it pop and the way you mm-hmm. can see everything kind of crump, you know, decrumple. It just looks, even though it's, you know, even though it's film being run backwards, it looks right. That's how I could imagine metal popping free and like retaking re- its shape again. Yeah, it's those little things like that that really sell what they're doing. And I noticed exactly what you were talking about, dude. Just like metal popping out, things all of a sudden just moving and convulsing and sounds and everything like that. It's just these are like the little specifics that make something like that so great, you know? And I could like, in my mind, I could see what this would look like as a CGI. And even if like, even if they made this movie in the nineties or whatever, the CGI would have been awful, Mm -hmm. you know, like, but um, by a modern day's CGI, 
I still don't even think it's going to look right, man. There's something about it that even with technology today, I don't believe that they would be able to replicate what they did in uh, in that rebuilding scene. You know, and I and I think I think a, I think that's sort of like the uncanny valley for special effects is stuff that's like getting broken or getting rebuilt. It's just something I, I don't know what it is. Just something doesn't look quite right. Even even like CGI heavy car crashes don't look right. But when you have the when you have this practical effects team have two cars slam into each other. I mean, obviously it's really happening. That just mm. in my brain, in my, in my eye, in my head, in my brain, when I see it on film, I'm like, that looks right. Whereas two CGI cars or, you know, one real car and a sled, basically like that's going to have a car superimposed on it later when they collide, it doesn't look right. No, it, it almost looks like you're seeing actual animation, even though it's CGI, it doesn't look like a real car. Mm. And it's, Great as the CGI can be, there is just something about the CGI car accident that's never going to really capture the realness of what a car accident is. You know, and they always try to style it, stylize it up a little bit. Like we're going to cut the slow mo and do a rotating camera in the in the sea of glass that's mm-hmm. flying everywhere, and it doesn't really need to be like that. You know, no. like I actually think like a lot of the better, like and definitely more impactful uh, car crashes in film and TV are when it's, um, you know, you see the driver and then behind them like a truck comes and, and that's it. I think that that is so effective right there. I really don't need the CGI, the slowdown camera, the stylized car accident to convey the point that they're trying to make. Yeah, exactly. Except some, I mean, it is one of those things. This is one of those instances where obviously the practical effects are great and less is more when it, when it comes to this kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely. The less is more approach really worked here. Uh, So I'm with you on that. I'll just just add one more thing here to the effects work. Christine's death was pretty awesome. Not, not the, not the getting cubed, but like when Dennis is on top of the car with, with the, with the bulldozer and she is slowly getting crushed, but still like crawling away. It really, like, that was one of those moments where I'm just like, it, it's one of those moments where you're like, you really do feel like it's an animal trying to escape being killed. Yeah, oh, you bet, dude. Like, the images that they were going out with in that scene, like, I think really, like, that was probably, like, some of the most human we've ever, like, seen Christine is when she was at her worst, you know, mm-hmm. at least, like, aside from the whole, like, getting set on fire and getting crushed by buddy or whatever is Dennis and a bulldozer repeatedly running her over, like uh, dredging the bulldozers, like um, the, the little cup thing with the teeth yeah. and stuff like that into her and everything. And I guess because that they personified the car so well, that scene hits on more than just a guy in a, in a bulldozer in a car. Mm-hmm. Exactly. 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 Um, anything, anything else here? Any other positives? Not really too. Not really too much like this specific wise. I mean, like I, I like I really did like the movie. Like I, I liked the, the songs that they picked. You know, I thought that that was kind of cool that they went with like the 50 soundtrack and everything. Um, like, yeah, I mean, there's there's just really not much to other like uh, there's not much that I could add here that I think don't think I've already said. Yeah, I got you. Um, I'll, I'll just I just have a couple quick things here. Um, I guess one's it's more writing, but whatever. Um, I like that the ending is sort of like a, it, it's sort of a classic misdirection and simultaneous Stephen King and John Carpenter ending where mm-hmm. we, where we get the 1950s music and it's, you know, it's the, it's the, it's the guy working yep. at the scrapyard or the, the wrecking yard or whatever, holding the, holding the boom box. So it's like, oh, okay, all is well. And then we yep. slowly see the metal 
starting to reform itself just for a second there. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm like, okay, good. Glad that, glad that, um, that ending. I'm glad that we had like a little bit of a, a dark open ending, uh, for this movie because that's in line with both King and Carpenter. Right. And the, the facial expressions on Lee and Dennis's face where they hear the music mm-hmm. and stuff again, the, the little, like whatever it is, three to five seconds that that whole beat exists is great. It's perfect. It's a great way to, it's a great way to end the movie. Yeah, absolutely. And I forgot the other thing I was going to say, so we can just, we can just move on. (laughs) (laughs) I really totally just lost it. Um, But anyway, um, so let's, so then let's get into some of the negatives because there's, there's definitely, I have have plenty here. It's again, not that I don't like the movie. I just think, I just think there's plenty they could have done that would have kicked this thing up a notch or two. So again, uh, let's just start with the direction and production. Give me, give me your negatives. Throw me out your negatives here. Okay, so I, what I'm going to focus on here is some of the pacing stuff. I didn't want to put this into the writing category because mm-hmm. I have a completely different thing to go off for when we get to okay. that. But I'm not going to lie. Like, I felt that um, this whole thing, the pacing was, it could have been picked up a little bit. And I know that it was deliberately done for a reason and everything, and I, I get all of that. But to go from minute number three or four in the movie to minute number four, 40, where there is like basically like 37 minutes or so of maybe a couple of jump scares. There's so much room. They could have done so much more Mm -hmm. with with that. You know, like I, for the life of me, I don't really know how they could have done it. Like other than basically um, getting Christine prepared faster and getting to that faster. I I don't think that like additional jump scares would have helped this, you know, movie if it was just like, Hey, Oh my God, Arnie's afraid of this guy now or whatever it is, but getting to some of the horror earlier was something um, I think that definitely could have been, that could have been done here. And even once we get to that 40 minute mark, when Christine is completed and everything it's um, hold on, let me see here. You're at 40 minutes into the movie. Uh, she is finally fully repaired 45 minutes into the movie. That's when the drive-in incident happens where Lee is choking mm. on the hamburger and everything. One hour into the movie is Christine finally like rebuilding herself and everything. And after being pummeled by buddy and stuff, one hour and six minutes into the movie is when Moochie finally dies. So realistically here, you went from minute number three with the, the dude like killing him or, you know, getting killed by Christine on the assembly line to what is 45 minutes with the drive-in. So instead of being 37 minutes, you're actually 42 minutes without any type of real horror. Mm-hmm. And that I, I think is something that could be improved upon big time. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm with you here. I don't mind. I don't mind the deliberate pacing of, of a horror movie or any movie. I really don't. But I, I, hit, I hit on the same thing here, even though, and I kind of put it there, even this, even though this movie was under two hours, it felt like there was a lot of dead space um that that could have been filled um in and it's weird like there's dead space that could be filled but it still needed to be longer and which doesn't really make any sense when you when you put those things together but i I, but i think that's where some of the stuff that i'm picturing like we get a quick a quick snapshot of what of what buddy's home life is like you know getting the bowers treatment so like we understand why he's a fucking prick um the quick you know the quick um or a couple you know an extra scene or two with um with uh, George LeBoy to kind of uh, you know further or I guess expand the scene with George LeBoy to like kind of further understand 
what the fuck's going on with Christine. Um, at least one more scene of of Arnie repairing Christine and sort of becoming bonded with her. You know, you know, deathly bonded mm-hmm. with her to sort of understand what was going on. I think that like there's all this room was in there, you know, for all this room was there in there for that kind of stuff, and it still could be about a minute, an hour and fifty, but probably needed to be over two hours long. Yeah, of, of course. You're so right about the dead space. And you make a really good point about how there is dead space, but the movie could have been longer. It's, <laughs> it's, such, so an interesting, it's such an interesting dynamic to have, but you're, you're entirely right. There is a lot and lot of dead space in this movie. And I don't believe that it has to be one of those movies like, like the It movies where you're getting a scare every five right. minutes or three right. minutes or whatever. But they could do a little bit better of a job of rearranging some events and stuff like that or even like maybe you even get a shot of christine earlier on and then we get buddies something you could still have all of the like little additions that we talked about if this movie was just kind of like maybe like cut up into pieces and rearranged differently mm-hmm. yeah no I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that there yeah there's yeah there's just some i don't know they're just i guess those are just choices that i, I would not have made um, or, you know, it, it's, and if you're, you know what, if you're going to focus on, like what we've talked about, if you're going to focus on more of the characters and more of the human side, then we need them doing more things. We need them mm-hmm. talking more. We need them explaining more, but right. Whatever. Yeah. How about, uh, how about uh, acting and writing here? Since you, it sounds like I got something for this too, that kind of pisses me off. So I'll let you go first. Okay. Though. So, so acting wise, I, I did make a lot of comments about some of the faults in these actresses performances mm-hmm. but for this particular category i'm just going to say moochie could have acted a lot more afraid or even just more in general during that scene like yeah it was just kind of him crying i don't know man like i i wasn't really buying that whole thing and i'm not gonna lie like if it was me i probably would have done everything possible to like climb over the car or something like that so just with this whole like him kind of just standing and screaming and accepting his fate, I thought that that particular death could have used a little bit more acting. So that is my one um, critique for the acting. Now I'm going to get in with some of the writing stuff. And this is what I've been waiting to do for a majority of the episode okay. now. So, okay. By the end of the movie, I literally never want to hear the fucking word car ever again. Okay. Like they said car so many goddamn times. Okay. And I'm going to tell you something 100% serious. This is not a lie. After I got done watching that movie, I told Jess that I was going to go down to my automobile and smoke weed. Okay. Like I didn't say car at all. I referred to it as an automobile. Okay. So I just got so sick of hearing the word car. And I'm going to give you like a couple examples of just things that really kind of drove me it's like i have no problem with like the word car being used it's like hey man you want to get in my car or something like that or let's take my car to the store but like for example when arnie drops lee off at her house after the, the driving incident you even get a little bit of this after the the choking with they're standing there in the rain it's like i'm not getting in that car and it's you in that car and it's the car car mm-hmm. car car mm-hmm. okay so there's that so then when dennis and uh, Arnie are drinking beer and stuff like that and driving and everything. I'm going to go back to uh, this scene briefly. Even Dennis has got this kind of whiny moment where he's just like, man, it's just you in this car. I just don't get what's you in this car. Mm-hmm. And then a couple minutes after that, this was like, I hated this. This line even still sticks with me. But like Arnie's like sitting behind the wheel and he's like, yeah, man, there ain't nothing like being behind the wheel of your own car. And I'm just like, oh, dude, like enough with saying the fucking word car. I just got so sick of like people like 
I wish that there was some other way to describe it, but it's not. It's a killer car, and it's just everybody getting all emotional about this car. It just didn't it didn't hit with me, and it didn't hit with me the first time, and it definitely didn't hit with me 25 other times later, okay? So I know that this is what the story is, but there just has to be a better way of projecting the emotions that they were trying to do without whining about this guy and his relationship with his car. It could be directed more at Arnie specifically. It could be directed like at the, the elements surrounding Arnie's like, hey, man, are your parents really like that big of asshole, whatever this is. But just hearing all this stuff about a car over and over again, just it, it really got to me, man. It really bugged me. It was almost like the equivalent of the shitter thing. And I'm going to go with one other example of the writing that really could have been torn down. And I can't even believe that I'm about to say this because I'm one of the biggest fans of this word that has ever walked the face of the earth is they use the F word way too goddamn much. And the, and you could really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, yeah. And like what you were saying earlier about the rewrite and the, basically how it was PG and they inserted F bombs. I, this is where I was saving. This is where I was going to bring this up in the conversation is that it is so obvious that that is what they did. Mm -hmm. Okay. There is like, there is, if somebody were to tell me that, and then I get to like watch this movie without actually knowing that that happened with them inserting the F bomb a bunch of times, I would completely believe it. This is definitely a script that they were looking through and they're like, okay, so Arnie says, this guy says to this guy, like, Hey, like screw you. Let's get rid of screw and replace it with fuck, okay? And then we're going to do this as many other times as humanly possible as we can in, in the script, just, you know, because they, they need to get that R rating and everything. And I actually think that they probably could have gotten the R rating and cut the F word out about 10 or 15 different F-bombs. But by the time we got to the end of the movie, I had heard the F word used so, like, just not the way that it should be used. It felt so forced. It felt very, very inserted. And, and it actually, I'm not going to lie. Like I've heard forever about this argument about profanity, losing its luster and stuff over that over time. I've only been so hesitant to jump on this train. This movie actually showed me that, yeah, too much profanity can be a thing. And um, I got it. I'll wrap everything up with this is that, it would have been a little bit more believable if we were getting it from jump, but we weren't. There was at least a 10 or 15 minute period where there was no profanity whatsoever. We didn't even get the shitters for like 10 or 15 minutes, I think. We maybe got it once or something like that. But then once you get to the scene where Arnie is being harassed by Buddy in, in the shop class or in the, the class or whatever it is, um, that's when we first hear the F-bomb for the first time we also get, we hear, hear the C word, I think, in there too. Mm -hmm. And it just kind of explodes when profanity should not explode. It should be organic from the beginning. Like, even if Dennis picked up Arnie and said, hey, what's up, fuckface? You know, so, something stupid like right. that that I'm sure friends would say to one another. All of the other profanity would have been a little bit more believable. But there was this huge period of time where we didn't get any. And it kind of felt like it kind of felt like when you're watching like a PG-13 movie now and you hear that one example of the F-bomb used early on and you maybe don't even know that the movie's PG-13, but you're like, OK, so they say they say the word fuck in the first five minutes. This is clearly a rated R movie and then you never hear it again. It was kind of like the reverse of that. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm with you on this. It's I, I don't think <clears throat> profanity and extremes, extreme amounts of profanity doesn't bother me. 
I mean, I've been watching Scorsese movies my whole life. Um, there's profanity, racist language, just filling those movies. But mm-hmm. like, like you said, that's sort of like the expectation. We're going to be hanging out with some like hardcore Italian gangsters in a Marty Scorsese movie. So there's going to be a lot of F-bombs and a lot of, a, a lot of rough language denigrating people of other races. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm kind of expecting it. It just... It, it, you, you're right, like, you can you can drop a couple here and there when, you know, like, when Arnie is kind of first really very hard rebelling against his parents, telling him to shut the fuck up or whatever, or he tells his dad to fuck, he says, he tells his dad, get your hands off me, you motherfucker. Um, like, that kind of fits with the whole transformation stuff. But, like, the way that just gets, like, shoehorned in later on is just, like, like, why are you guys talking to each other like this? This doesn't make any sense. Like, it just, right. I, so I think, I think it's not necessarily the amount, it's, like, the type of movie you're going for and the deployment of it. And it was just, like, it's very clear that that's exactly what they were trying to do and get an R rating because it's deployed in conversation in a way that you and I would just not, would not do it. Yeah, that that's exactly right, dude. You could you would feel that, you could feel the forcedness of it, mm-hmm. you know, you could really feel forced. Yeah, exactly. So... What is uh what is your um on this one? Well, we've we've covered a lot of the acting stuff, so I I won't dive too far into that. Um, you know, other than like we need a little bit more, hu- you know, a little more time with the human characters, and I think a little more time with uh, with Arnie and Christine. Um, but like as far as the writing goes, they did Alexandra Paul fucking dirty. What? Oh yeah. Wh- like seriously, what the fuck was she there for? Um, she yeah. had nothing to do, nothing to say she was only there when other important things were happening to Arnie or Dennis. Uh, she, she gets to play the damsel in distress once she literally does nothing throughout the course of this movie. And we're supposed to kind of pick up that like, she's a smart girl. Um, you know, she dresses like a smart girl, but she's got the body of a bad girl or whatever the hell the, um, you know, Dennis and, uh, Dennis and Arnie's one friend says, um, but like she did nothing. We get no real background on her other than that. She moved here. And then, oh, now I'm, you know, I'm going to reject Dennis because I'm dating Arnie. There's just, like, she has nothing to do at all. And just a complete, a complete waste of this. Like, if she wasn't in this movie, I don't think a lot changes. Yeah. Nope. You couldn't. Yep. Definitely, dude. This is a character that, um, number one, you're right. If she was not there, not much would have changed. They could have just had Arnie basically hooking up with anybody to get the point across that he's a cool guy and mm-hmm. confident now and all that stuff. The thing that I said earlier about her figuring out that he that's kind of like the only saving grace, but that even then that's nothing to get excited about. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like because it just I don't know. It kind of, maybe we'll go back to this whole like it wasn't enough kind of thing that this that that element of it. It's like okay, so she noticed this. BFD. She didn't really do anything with it. You know, she was her character wasn't really a doer. It was more of just this, you know, really attractive person who, you know, I like I said before, like the, the fact that she figured it out, it does give her and what you said, like better than basically being a pair of boobs and stuff like that. Mm. But it's not it's not much above that. And that's kind of like the most stockiest of characters in this movie. Like I think if there was any character that you could really like pick out of this movie take away from it and still be the same movie or maybe even a better one it'd, it'd be her yeah yeah no it's and actually it's, it's kind of surprising that she wasn't sexualized more you know what i mean like right it, you know she like again alexander paul great looking woman um it, you know 
like I said, you don't they don't put ugly people into Baywatch. Um, I mean, she's a great looking woman. Um, but like, even though they kind of reduced her to basically nothing, um, I was, it's still kind of shocking that they didn't try to play up the fact that she's, she's a good looking woman. Um, which a lot of other, most other horror movies or most of the movies would have done that just, just because, but it's, I don't, I don't know. It's just like, she's in this weird position where like they, they want, they clearly introduce her early on as something, you know, an important character, but then give her really nothing important to do other than be a victim, uh, you know, an almost victim of Christine, and then the person who sort of, really, like you said, the person who sort of figures it out, but she doesn't do anything about it. She just relays it to Dennis, and Dennis has to do everything about it. Yeah, that that's that's true. You're right. Yeah, there's no there's no action for her. There's no like I, I mean maybe she tra- maybe she changed and they like in the sense that you know now she woke up and is like hey I don't like Arnie and now I can go be with Dennis but right. that's not that's an that's an artificial character arc right, right there you know what i'm saying that that's nothing that's not any growth or development or change with her as a person it's just basically she's now changing the guy that she was into and everything like that right. so yeah they, they, they that's a character that they they definitely like um they didn't put a lot of effort in it might be a bigger character in the book in fact it's probably a bigger character in the book yeah there's but, um, there's a whole there is a whole romance plot with with her and dennis right yeah i've read i definitely read i read about that for sure which which you know which is why i say she's definitely like a bigger character in the book so maybe this would be one of some of the thing one of the things from the book that kind of had to get axed and for yeah. the sake of the movie but since we've already said there's been dead space and it can be longer it could just be a bad decision. Yeah, exactly. And, and and it's one of those things I I definitely Stephen King writes well-rounded characters, male or female. So this definitely feels like this definitely feels like a carpenter slash studio decision, maybe a Bill Phillips decision to drop to drop anything that uh, anything else that maybe maybe the the lead character would have had to do. Yeah, I got I definitely got what you're saying here for sure. Um, how about do are there any negatives for the effects work? To be honest with you, here's the words that I wrote down on my uh, script here. Not too much negative, not too many negative things to say about <laughs> right. the effects. Yeah, like I still, I, I don't really think so. I mean, like, could there have been more blood and stuff? But that's not necessarily something a negative. You know, right, it's that's... just uh, this. Maybe this could have happened, but no, right, I exactly. thought the effects were great. Yeah, ex- same thing. I just, I basically just said I just needed more blood. That was that, that, that was all I put down. It's not really like you said. It's not a negative. It's just like something that I would have wanted. Um, right. But yeah, there's, there is no negative here again. Like this is, you know, maybe we'll, maybe, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to save this question that I have in mind right now for when we get done with, uh, with our next episode, kind of like a wrap up uh, overall for John Carpenter. So I'm not going to ask this question now. I just want to move on to the next one. Uh, just anything else that that you kind of saw as a negative? Just the fact that what I kind of was saying earlier that we didn't really get to see the full Carpenter and you kind of reinforced this by the whole, like, it's just not enough. You know what I'm saying? That that would be my, my big negative, like, you know, thing that I would say mm-hmm. on top of some of the other critiques that I mentioned, it's just, we're not getting the full Carpenter. Here. Yeah. I, I kind of have it. You're you basically are saying the same thing I'm saying here. I'm going to say here just in a different way. Just that even the most, even the most memorable stuff from this, like Christine rolling down the street on fire, um, you know, Moochie getting cornered by that, you know, by Christine, those images, the scenes aren't up to snuff with what John Carpenter does in his movies. It's just not right. It's, it's 70%, 50% of John Carpenter probably. Yeah. Yeah. You bet. There's, 
the iconoclasm this movie was a box office success too it doubled its money mm-hmm. easily on a 10 million dollar budget made 21 million dollars per wikipedia's numbers anyway and it's amazing how with that kind of turnaround coming from john carpenter coming from stephen king in his heyday there is little iconoclasm from the movie yeah. mm-hmm. exactly all right, so let's get into this little final leg here. The modernization of Christine. Maybe this is just real quickly, gentlemen. Maybe this is kind of uh, this is kind of like one of those hints that this isn't this doesn't come even to cult classic sort of um, you know sort of status because there's been many homages to Christine in various mm-hmm. movies and TV shows. I already mentioned you know one from Ash vs Evil Dead. There's been many homages, but like no one's done a straight remake. Yeah. No. You- there was there something in 93 was it like a usa show or something like there that might have, i think there might have been to? an attempt like that let me yeah just but just um I'll, I'll look that up real quick here but like basically you know like if, if something's a commodity even if it's even if it's a lesser known cult classic or something like that someone tries to remake it right yeah they're remaking they may remade angels in the outfield for crying out loud you know so i like yeah the remake bug is it's always going to be there and if it is you know, like a, a product that, um, you know, maybe has the cult status, maybe not. Like the, the remake thing, what I'm saying here is that it's always on the table, especially in today's world. Maybe Citizen Kane and Pulp Fiction and 10 other movies are off the table. But for the most part, the remake is very alive. Yeah, exactly. And there's, boy, there I'm not finding anything as far as any okay. attempts to remake it. So maybe it's just one of those, that's one of those things. It's just, it's not... It's not iconic in its own way. It's not iconic enough in its own way to to prompt anyone to go, you know what we need right now? We need a Christine remake. Yeah, dude, that's what America's been asking for, man. With all the great horror that's been out now in this horror revolution, we want to kill our car. Yeah. Like, yeah, it, it just doesn't even fit. And, like, it doesn't – and I mentioned the whole thing about this horror renaissance revolution or whatever – Something like this, I don't even think fits into the horror renaissance that we're having. It's almost like the the concept is too simple and horror is slowly moving to be a little bit more sophisticated. But I'm not saying that a remake is entirely out of the question because we're going to get into some things Mm -hmm. here. But um, I'm just saying that if it were to happen, they are looking at a real uphill climb, dude, a real big one. Yeah, I I, I would agree with that. So so then tell me, what what would your most critical... um critical changes or updates to this movie that, that that would sort of bring it into the into the 2020s okay so we said before that this movie is not enough we are going to need to make it enough for mm-hmm. 2020 and like the the two things that i think we could do this are body count and character development mm-hmm. and where i start off with body counts is kind of like what you were talking about earlier, where there has to be more creative deaths. There has to be more gore. There has to be really pumping this well for all it's worth. And I'm talking about even like somebody escaping into the sewers or something. And when they pick their head up out of the manhole, Christine just runs them over right. and there's a head pop gone, you know, right. or even like, um, hurting somebody first like let's just say christine clips somebody's leg and now all of a sudden their leg is broken and so there's just a little bit more that they could do with putting people in danger with um with this situation and stuff and i'm not gonna lie like it's going to be like it's going to be 
you're probably looking at something where the horror is definitely not paced out the way that the original was. You might end up being looking at something like where there's a head splatter every like 10 minutes or so, something like that before we dive in, before we get into like the meat and potatoes of the story mm-hmm. anyway. So where I would definitely make some changes when it comes to um, character development and everything, I'm specifically talking about the Arnie's relationship with Christine. I think all the other stock characters and everything like that could be basically, they're not difficult to write. The most difficult thing to do and pull off in the remake is this descent into madness on behalf of Arnie with the car and everything. And if I were to do this, um, I would definitely like um, what I would do. And I, I hate to say this because I actually, I think it's sort of cheap, but it's the only way that I can, could actually see that this would work would be a lot of almost like what looks to be like inner dialogue where the character is like talking to himself, but he's really having a conversation with the car. And I'm not like, I don't want Christine to talk. I don't want the radio to light up, you know, insinuating words like Bumblebee or anything, but I would have to think that the audience is going to have to live in this relationship with Arnie and Christine for a lot longer. You're not going to be able to do it in the way that they did it in Christine, the original, there's going to have to be more interaction. So I'm thinking it's going to be something like Arnie is responding to questions that Christine is like basically you know, asking him through telepathy or something like that. And we maybe get to see some some kind of thing where like maybe Christine is like torturing Arnie in some way, shape or form, you know, something to kind of glue them together a little bit better than what we got in the original. So my, those are, those are my first, those are my big two body count and character development. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm with you on both of these. Just basically you can just stick that up on the, uh, for any horror movie that doesn't have enough deaths in it for me, just go ahead and stick up. On like a so like a on a board somewhere, just like more blood, more guts, more bodies, please. Um, right. And, and again, just those those two episodes of Ash versus Evil Dead with the Christine homage, there is they more than make up for 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 the lack of body count in this and the lack of creative deaths. There's there is a great one where this dude gets his whole fucking head just smeared off by the by the car tires. It's it's fucking fantastic. It's everyone's soaked in blood. It's fucking it's it's fucking great. Yeah. But yeah, like. You know what I'm saying? That's exactly what I'm yeah. saying. Yeah, exactly it's, right. it's 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 oh it's way over the top, but you're just kind of like you're kind of like, God damn, that would have been great if that was in the original. Um right. but, but anyway, um so like I'm with you on that first and foremost, and you're exactly hitting on like I think what the biggest sort of update or the biggest change I would make here is that I would make this movie centered almost completely on the relationship between Christine and whoever our owner or driver is. That like mm-hmm. this you know he or she would basically be in like 90% of this movie um, with yeah. the car. Like it would be every scene would hinge on them sort of growing closer, being mesmerized by Christine. I would have, I would probably include more since we didn't get like a, oh, since we didn't get so much like, you know, exposition and backstory as we would have liked in the original, you know, in terms of like how this works, maybe there's some sort of scene or, or multiple scenes showing, you know, not like, I don't know, not like, I like the way you put like the sort of like the inner dialogue almost like or monologue, like a character mm-hmm. would be having with themselves. Basically that kind of stuff where like the, the, you're right. I don't think, I don't want the car to talk. I don't like the radio stuff. So I think it would be sort of scenes of the person sitting in the car and like slowly, you know, at first sort of just talking out loud to themselves, right? Like looking at right. the car, like, man, you did, I did a great fucking job on this. This looks beautiful. And it goes from like that sort of just 
speaking as casual talk out loud to then suddenly there's a question to be answered. Then like we're having full blown conversations. Then we're having like a clear mental breakdown. Like mm-hmm. we're watching this person, you know, go from in the presence of the car, go from a normal person to like a complete fucking basket case. And right. I want to see that very specifically from beginning to end. And so like, you know, and, and quicken the pace a little bit so that like, you know, let's just say this is a, like a two hour movie that like that sort of descent into complete madness is done by the first half of the movie. And then we can get to killing as many people as possible in the second half. That's a really good point. You want to get to that descent as soon as humanly possible. And a modern audience is not going to play the the long game on that. They're going to want the basically the entire setup and everything that we need to push the story forward to happen in the first 30 minutes and everything. So the whole long con of the, um, the original would not work in front of a modern audience. Right. So you're, you're right about, you're definitely right about um, the, the pacing and everything like that for sure. And actually I wanted to bring up just some really stupid, this is just goes back to the screenwriting book that mm-hmm. I was reading. As you mentioned, the whole word monologue. Now it turns out this book that I've been reading, which is called dialogue by Robert McKee argues that even when a character is speaking to himself, that the character is actually not involved in a monologue. They're actually involved in a dual dialogue, which is called a dual log, believe it or not. Yeah, they're in a dual. Yeah. So what happens is the character is actually splitting into two different versions of himself. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I, um, believe me, dude, like I, um, just a stupid t- tidbit of information that I um, that, that I learned because I have to keep talking about this book because it ran me into the ground for a month and a half. So <laughs> I just have to get some of the stuff out there. <laughs> no, that's no, that's really good, and it makes perfect sense because like a monologue would just be me speaking to to you or whatever my audience is, and the dualogue right. makes much more sense. And the way they present it, they always present mm-hmm. it in movies is either a split personality or sort of the way that we're kind of hashing it out. Mm-hmm. It's the car talking yeah. through through yeah. our, our our driver our owner yeah and like they started to get into that a little bit when mm-hmm. Artie says show me and then she puts herself together we could have used just even a little bit more like that something to look that like he was directly engaged in the conversation yeah. with the car yeah exactly exactly i i think that's that's something i'm, I'm just really surprised that they kind of missed that because that's not like a new concept at all Right. Yeah, definitely. That's been around for a while. Yeah, yeah. you bet. Uh, so here, now here's a question because I asked this because there we've talked before, we talked before about how Carpenter um, does have some social commentary, you know, baked into mm-hmm. a lot of his movies, and this clearly is one that does not have any sort of like additional, uh, you know, additional commentary or anything. I don't know if the Stephen King book does have any additional commentary on things. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of his are just more straightforward stories, um, but there sometimes mm-hmm. will be a little bit more to it. Um, but for this, Christine, for sure, no, no kind of commentary on, on anything. Whereas a lot of most modern horror movies are about something other than mm-hmm. just people getting maimed. So yeah. would you adjust this to have, to have a commentary in it? And if, if so, what would be your, what would be the thing that you're trying to get at? Okay. I definitely would have. And I'm actually glad that you said what you just did, because I was actually going to ask you a question before answering this question. And that question was if Christine is allegorical for any like societal fears of that time, which I I, I don't see it. I just don't see if it's there. Maybe someone smarter than us found it, but I just do not see it. Yeah, I, I don't see it either. And what I would do is I would definitely make my version of Christine allegorical for something. And believe me, dude, I am not going, I'm not digging deep here. This is 
very, very basic, but it would work. And that is I would make Christine a smart car, like an electronic car or whatever, like mm-hmm. not gas powered as sort of a statement about the like a fear of technology, which is mm. a societal fear that we're kind of going into right now. And just this advanced technology, you know, and I'd throw maybe like a couple shots in there of like maybe like the electronic SUV runs over a regular something like that, you know, just some yeah. kind of like a visual statement about, hey, gas powered cars move out of the way electronic cars are coming. But um, that is honestly, man, like. I feel that that is direct enough of an allegory. It's simple enough that a, a mass audience will understand it. And it's something that I could shape and mold to fit the overall like goal job tone of the film and stuff. Yeah. I, I that was actually one of the things I was thinking about sort of so a little bit different. Um, I was thinking about like an electric car destroying, destroying people that have like polluters and stuff, um, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. like, a, like a green sort of uh, a green sort of idea. Um, there's a bunch that kind of flipped through my head here. I'm glad you brought that one up. That's a really good one too. Um, like, boy, they could have fuck. They could have um, they could have figured out a way to bake in some sort of allegory here. But um, again, like I'm just I'm just surprised that between between Carpenter and King, they couldn't find one. Even if even if they had to manufacture it just for the movie, it wasn't in the book. I'm just surprised they couldn't find one. Um, but I like yours quite a bit. I, I thought about a lot of things. Here's I want to run through one here real quickly for you that I think would be kind of cool, but like I don't think I'm in. I don't think I'm. I don't think I can speak too much on it. Um, okay. That it would be it would be a commentary on race since we're we're balls deep in race relations stuff right now and social justice mm-hmm. issues. It would be like a super nice car, like just pick out like a you know a super nice Lexus, maybe like a, maybe something even over the top, like some kind of like. Um, like a some kind of like foreign you know foreign sports car, and right. a black guy owns it, and he keeps getting pulled over for being in it, and people keep asking if it's his car, and like his his you know rage over this like idiocy just sort of gets transferred to the car and it goes off on its own to, to kill people. Mm-hmm. Dude, that works. Interesting. Like, honest to God, I yeah, just don't think works. that's something. I don't think that's something I could personally write. I have oh, to give I that can. to someone else. Yeah. Oh hell no. Like I. I cannot do anything like that when it comes. And I'll tell you, like, it's not my, it's not my place in the world to do so. You know, like if I, as a writer and stuff, I could definitely bring awareness to certain like racial injustices and social injustices, but I will never be able to fully capture the perspective of an African-American main character driving around a car, getting pulled over, wondering if it's his, I'll never be able to capture that. And right. any attempt that I would, would look really, really bad. Exactly. Um, I did. So that was, that was like my main idea, but I thought, I'm like, eh, I don't know if I could, I could fully embrace that one, but I did have, here's my, here's my real idea that I think I, I could even work on this, even though it's something I've never experienced, but um, I think I could work on this. I would gender flip the main roles. So it'd be a woman okay. is is the main is the main character, um, well a girl probably you know again I would keep it like mm-hmm. as like teenagers, um, a, a girl who is physically assaulted by her boyfriend, and you know however she comes into the possession of of you know this modern Christine, it turns into like a revenge tour on piece of shit guys. Oh yeah, oh yeah, revenge turning this into a revenge story, I think would be awesome and like the car is almost like her. Um, you know, like almost kind of like her trainer, like, Hey, let's go out and get these guys. Right. You know what I'm saying? Here's what we're going to do. And 
you know, she maybe learns something about herself in the process or some something like that just to give the character an actual arc or something. But to make it a revenge story would be great. And Christine is the perfect vehicle to do so. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I just yeah. thought that one, it's simple. It's straightforward. Um, you know, I'm obviously not a, a woman who's been slighted, but I'm someone who has been slighted in their personal life by other people. Um, and, and been treated, treated incorrectly by other people. I know what revenge, mm-hmm. I know what kind of revenge I want to get on certain people. So, um, I think that comes from, uh, you know, that's, that's a, that's a common place to come from. Yeah, exactly, man. Like the revenge story and everything. I don't care how pure at heart you are, or you go to church all the time. Everybody has been slighted and it hurts and everybody has thought about repercussions. Like that is the human nature. Yep. So uh, who would who would direct your your modern interpretation of Christine and more probably most importantly what kind of car would be the star? Okay, so when it comes to the car, I am going with either two options. The first option is the new electric Hummer, um, which I think the front grille of the electric Hummer could look very very sinister if done the right way, mm-hmm. and it's also I think a really cool kind of statement to have what used to be the biggest gas guzzling car in the market now is an electric vehicle mm-hmm. being the antagonist in a movie about a, a, a killer car or whatever. Um, so that is my first choice. The second choice, just because I think that this would look so dopey and cool in its own way is the Tesla Cybertruck, that little like boxy trapezoid mm-hmm. kind of thing or whatever. Mm-hmm. There's just something about this image like being like seeing the Tesla Cybertruck roll up on a character in the background, it's kind of going to be like this movie rubber, which is about a tire that kills people and stuff through telepathy. So I, I, I as far as like something that maybe could be humorous to, to get out of it, the idea of this Tesla Cybertruck squaring up to run somebody over the, the image I think could be very humorous if done right. Yeah, for sure. For actually that it does look kind of funny on its own and it does look, it looks so it looks too futuristic, so I could see it being the perfect vehicle um, to sort of usher mm-hmm. in in that sort of like fear of technology and like the the way that um, you know the way that like more green um, green automobiles are being produced. I could see that the Cybertruck being sort of something you want to use because it's just so odd looking. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And the um, the director choice, um, I'm pretty much going with this only because I've started watching not his recent movie, but his second to last movie called uh, The Lords of Salem. I want Rob Zombie in this all the way. If I'm going a gritty fucking blood balls to the wall with cars and smashing and bodies and blood and stuff, I do want this guy in there. And I thought the way that he took the Halloween Um, the first two movies that he did and kind of turbocharged the characters like, you know, with the violence and everything. And Michael Myers as a kid beating her husband, her wife's boyfriend with a bath and everything like that. This is just the stuff that wasn't in the first one. This would be the kind of guy that I would want to be in charge of a remake like this. And there's something too. And like, I, I could know more about Rob Zombie. Believe me, I, I know some things, but not too much. There's just something about, this project being perfect for him, it might be the Dragula video and they're all driving around in the car or something, but it seems like Mm -hmm. this would be something that is just so perfect for him. I can totally see that. I I, I really, really can. There's, and I can almost see this music be, this, this uh, movie being populated with like some, you know, be they Rob Zombie heavy metal tunes or just heavy metal tunes in general. 
while while this mm-hmm. truck goes off the, off the rails and kills everybody. I can totally see it. Yeah, it does kind of fit, right? There's just something about Rob Zombie and like the I did just the, the balls to the wall horror element that would really complement a movie that doesn't really have a lot of balls to the wall horror element when you were when you describe it to somebody on paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I but yeah, no, it, it just it's weird. I just I know ex- I can almost picture exactly what you're going for, and yeah, why not Rob Zombie? There, at the very least, I, I like. I think everyone. I think Rob Zombie is one of those directors that like your mileage will vary, but like yep. you know when you see a Rob Zombie movie, it's very unlike anything else. And I just think that that would that would sort of be like a the perfect director to bring something that unique to life. Yeah, it's like I, like you're right about that, dude. And when he decided to take on the Halloween movies, like I was cool with it. Like I, I believe me, like I, I appreciate Rob Zombie's work. I love the Halloween franchise. It seems something that would kind of mesh well together. Um, after he did the second one, it maybe kind of made me realize like, uh, maybe he should have just done the one movie, but something like Christine is just, it has, it has like the, it, it has the premise that I could just see, I could really see Rob Zombie sinking his teeth into this man. Mm-hmm. Like this is just some, pro- there's not that many projects that I would throw Rob Zombie, but um, this would be one that I would just be like, here, dude, just take it and go have fun. Yeah. I, I, I'm, you know what? And I, I think that's like the key there is that like, he, he feels like a director. If you told him to have fun, that he would like indulge the funness of it. That like mm-hmm. th- this would be this would be like a you know his version would be like a very a very funny black comedy as just people are getting yeah. dismembered by a car. Yep, yep, definitely, dude, definitely. Yeah. Like it. So who I'll are like yours? Well, I'll, I'll start with the car as well. I'm gonna stick classic with this, um, mostly because it's just such a unique looking a unique looking vehicle. But but I, I like you, I'm gonna change it into a truck. But I'm going with a 1966 Chevy pickup. Just, it's literally what it's called, 19, 1966 Chevy pickup. Yep. Um, it's got a great, it's it's just got this very aggressive front grille to it. And if you, if like, if you go like into like the hot rodding, like trucks kind of stuff, um, there's a lot of like interesting aftermarket modifications that you can, that, that, are, that people have made yeah. for their 66 pickups. And there's, there's one in particular that sticks out. It's, 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 it's probably one of the first pictures you'll find. If you look it up, um, it's like this bright orange one. I don't know if you're looking for it or not. I I am definitely on that right now. There's a, yep, there we go. Yep, seeing it right now. There's a bright orange one that has some like aftermarket stuff, but like it's, it's subtle, but it just makes it look not like outwardly mean, but like you'd feel like a badass driving it, right? Yeah. Oh Yeah. yeah, dude. Like this whole thing with the um the wide headlights and stuff like that, it really allows for a face of the car. You know what I'm saying? Like it's not um right. There's it's not like a uh, like I'm trying to like those BMW grills where it's almost like you know like this like the size of like a football or something like mm-hmm. that. It's really like small. These grills are very large. They allow you to see the face of the car. They do give off like this certain kind of power type image and everything yep. like that that um that these cars were kind of going for and and back then in the 50s that America was going for. So yeah, something like this would definitely work um, to, to, to be the, the villain antagonistic Christine Carr. I'm looking at a, right now I'm looking at a silver one. Um, it might it actually might be it might be a different trim model. It says it's a 66 C10 and the way the way that they again there's some aftermarket stuff on it I can tell but like the way that the grill sort of the top or I should say the hood 
um, kind of angles down, just kind of gives mm-hmm. it like it's almost like it's almost like it's snarling. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm looking. Yep, yeah, I know what you're. T- yep, there's a silver one here. I'm looking at you. Yeah. It's, it's pin on '64 Chevy truck ideas is like the, the little yeah. caption under it. Yeah, this looks exactly like it. It almost looks like they took a um, the like kind of like the newer Mustangs almost like mm-hmm. that kind of design and put it to, on top of like an old school truck. Yeah, and those look pretty badass. It's pretty that. badass. So yeah, so I would go with the, I would go with the '66 Chevy pickup. It's just it's, it's unique. It's a it's a great looking car. Um, it just has a certain, it has a certain personality to, by the way, cars in the fifties and sixties, even in the seventies, they all had personalities that, that cars yeah. just really, very few cars really have anymore. Um, but, uh, so I would go with that and I would go with mostly because of her body of work. Um, I would go with Karen Kusama. I don't know if you're familiar with Karen Kusama or not. She did, probably, just... probably her first big splash was Jennifer's body with Megan Fox and Amanda oh, Seyfried. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've um, seen, I've seen Jennifer's body. Yeah. Okay. So, and, it, and this is, this, I guess the way I kind of envision her, her version of this is almost a Jennifer, a Jennifer's body esque type of story where our, our, our protagonist is sort of, or I guess the protagonist is, um, you know, being infected, you know, in, in Jennifer's body, she's possessed by, um, by like a succubus or whatever. And this, you know, she, our, our protagonist would be infected by the car, slowly turning mm-hmm. her into something else. And I just feel like it's, it, Karen, and, and she also did The Invitation, which is kind of a psychological horror. But okay. I just feel like, because there are psychological horror elements to this, um, plus the sort of the idea of like being possessed, she's done work with that. And it's not like Jennifer, Jennifer's Body is a great movie, but it's a fucking campy it's a campy black comedy as well. You know, like it's, mm-hmm. you don't, Diablo Cody wrote it. Don't take it too seriously. Yep. Um, right. Yeah. 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 Don't take it too seriously. But um, I just think she would be perfect to sort of hem, hem this thing that I think would be pushing the boundaries of like violence and black comedy, like into the same, into the same, you know, pushing the, pushing the, the bounds of violence, but trying to keep it as funny as you can, but still with that sort of like message about like, Hey, don't be a piece of shit guys. And this car won't come kill you. Mm-hmm. right right and dude i totally get what you're saying um jennifer's body is actually a default like example when people talk about marketing movies in multiple ways because mm-hmm. they marketed that as a horror movie but they also shot a trailer to make it look like a comedy comedy yep so yeah so th- that movie is like when you go to like csu's film class like csu film 101 and they talk about marketing that's like the movie that they always talk about as something that was being marketed in different ways because number one i mean th- it does you know capture both horror and comedy and everything like that but the fact that the studio made a conscious decision to market it as both, both is very right. interesting yeah right, exactly yeah it's been a while since i've seen that one I-, I have seen it i think i watched it like back during the whole like megan fox is the hottest woman that's ever like existed kind of thing that we got in the early <laughs> part of the 2000s but um yeah i remember i remember like at least being somewhat entertained by it when I watched it all those years ago. It's it's one of those ones I feel like I know I've seen it, but I'm not really sure why I don't remember it that well. And it's I mean again, it's got a really it's got a really interesting cast and gosh, like could you imagine getting this cast together again with Diablo Cody again writing something? It'd cost you a goddamn fortune. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, especially the way Amanda Seyfried is blown up in ways she's I awesome. never ever expected I know. to. She, yeah. She's quite awesome. I she is definitely more than She's definitely grown well past that mean girl stuff, uh, even though that's quite hysterical, but she's, she's awesome. Right. And dude, Diablo Cody has really come into her own. Like people, you know, people like love Juno and I'm not going to like Juno is a good movie, but mm-hmm. the movie that 
came out with Charlize Theron recently. I, I can't remember what it's called off the top of my head. I watched it. And it's, it's, it Diablo Cody like, wrote. Is it just called like Grown Up or adult, like Adulthood or something? Yeah, it's, oh yeah, my God, yeah, up. you're right. Yeah, it's, but she wrote that movie and that is, uh, that's young, way better young than adult. Young adult, yeah. yes, yes. That Patton Oswalt is really good, and that Patton Oswalt is insanely good in that movie, actually. And um, yeah, she's really come into her own once um, she got out of Juno and Jennifer's body and stuff. Hmm. I agree with you there. I definitely agree with you there. All right. Um, I don't have anything else here, Chema. Unless uh, I don't know any any final thoughts here before we close this. Okay. I got one question that I want to ask you. I've been yeah. trying to figure out the perfect time to do it. Didn't really get the opportunity to because the conversation was flowing so good, but I wanted to ask you it now. So you said earlier in the beginning, which I've heard and I totally agree with, that like these stories, like Stephen King is Arnie in this in this particular story. Mm. That like Stephen King himself does, you know, you know, interject himself into the characters as every single writer does, which is nothing new. So if this story is supposed to be anything that is allegorical or metaphorical for Stephen King's life, is Christine cocaine? Ooh, that's a very good question. I, I mean, part of me says yes. Part of me definitely says yes. Cause that, that would just, I mean, all of his various vices. Um, he's an alcoholic plus a drug addict. Um, mm-hmm. For sure, that, that would kind of make sense. I, but, but I feel like, I, 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 this is one of the things, I'd have to look at like all of his books written in like the late 70s into the early 80s. Um, I'm guessing that there, there's a lot of things you could draw connections to, to co- cocaine use and, and, and being an alcoholic mm-hmm. in his stories. But that's a really good yeah, question. I, I mean, that, yeah. it, that would make perfect sense. Yeah, I think there's I've, I've heard this old wives tale about Stephen King. I, I and ever since I've heard it, even with the uh, advancements in the Internet, I haven't really done any looking into this. But I've heard always that there was like supposedly a couple books that he has like no idea he even wrote. <laughs> and um, um, just, Dreamcatcher Dreamcatcher is sort of one of those. I mean, he knows he wrote it. He just doesn't remember big parts of it because that was him okay. you know, coming clean. Yeah, I, like I, I've heard that. um it was either Christine or I think it was Christine or Carrie. One of the two was his, like, I don't remember it. Cause I was just so coked out while writing it kind mm-hmm. of thing. So I've, um, it just, it, being that it is what it is. I always, um, at least like, as I was watching this, not, I always like, I had some like, you know, 30 year old opinion on the matter, <laughs> right. but, um, I, um, I did sort of get the impression that, Christine was maybe some type of metaphor for drug use, which could be a common metaphor in a lot of his writings. But I thought that if there was going to be one direct allegory or metaphor that I could assign to it, it would be that. That's yeah. That's a really, you know what? I, I will co-sign that. That I mean, that makes perfect fucking sense, especially, especially at this point in time in his life, it would make perfect sense. Oh, hell yeah. Stephen King. Did you hear that shit, dude? <laughs> so, I don't know. But, that's, uh, yeah, that, yeah. That, that would definitely be worth looking. I mean, if you can try to find something on it, that definitely be worth looking up. Um, it, like I said, it just makes that makes perfect sense. Yeah, I, I remember seeing like these. I remember seeing this like A and E biography or something about him, and they were talking about his, you know, early on in his writing and him and his wife not having too much money and stuff. And then, like I, so they tried to gloss over the drug use in like the most cheesiest A and E biography way possible. And it he just went it, it always tough had, times. Like, so tough you like know, to yeah <laughs> but, but why did he go through tough times yeah, we're not going to tell you that <laughs> so that, that was just kind of like one thing that um 
it, it, you know, like, especially like for my, myself who is, you know, had substance, like not necessarily issues, but certain hiccups along the way is what I would like to call them. Uh, th- that would be something like as my own as like, that would be like my own allegory or whatever. That That's kind of, I guess, like a, just a, almost like a general default kind of inject yourself into the story kind of thing. Yeah, no, I got you. That makes, that makes perfect sense. I'm looking this up right now to sort of, um, King's addictions and alcohol addictions to alcohol and other drugs were serious during the 1980s. He acknowledged that on writing 2000, he can barely remember writing Cujo. Cujo. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay, gotcha. I, yeah, Cujo's the, another early one. That's right. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Cujo, the movie, came out, I think, like, the next year or two years later or something like that. So that was another one that they really, you know, put out in the theaters as soon as they could. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There's nothing – yeah, I'm, I'm not finding anything else that, like, gives exact – yeah, that gives, like, exact sort of, um, you know, like, that, like, this is an allegory for this. But that does make perfect sense at the point in time that he would have been writing this. Cool, I'm taking it, dude. We're calling it right here. That's a, that's a way to end a fucking episode if I've ever seen one. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. Uh, any final thoughts? That was my only one, dude. Okay. No, nothing else on that. I really like. I just, I really enjoyed this movie. Um, like doing this whole kind of thing and stuff. It was cool to go back and like take a look at something like from John Carpenter's um, accessible era, as I like to call it. <laughs> yep, exactly. Um, definitely was a lot of fun. Um, and I'm really looking forward to next week. Might as well preview that now. Or not, well, not next week, but when we get to our next episode. The next episode, episode, yeah. The next episode when we get to it. um, We will be taking on the 1995, uh, again, just an accessible movie. um, Really what I called, I've seen it before, and I would call this the last really true John Carpenter movie. Um, Mm -hmm. And we're going to be watching In the Mouth of Madness uh, from 1995 with Sam Neill, and I forgot who his co-star is. It's got a pretty good cast, too, if I remember correctly. Um, I haven't, I haven't, I have yet to watch it yet for this, um, you know, for this recent rewatch we're going to do. So, um, but I'm excited to do that again, again, I'm excited to dive into something that isn't, you know, that isn't like the, the obvious material. I think this is going to be a lot of fun to do. Yes. Me too, dude. I'm looking forward to it. The outlines, you bet about like 50% done and I will get it to you as soon as I can. (laughs) Sounds perfect, man. You want to lead us out of here? I definitely will. Thank you very much, dude. And thank you to everybody out there for tuning into this episode of the Occasionalist Podcast. My name is Adam Chimalewski, Matthew Pagel. We are the Occasionalists, and we will see you next time. Thank you very much.